Welcome. I'm Dr. Vinay Prasad. I'm a hematologist oncologist, and I'm associate professor of medicine at the University of California, San Francisco. In my professional life, I see patients, I teach trainees, and I do research in healthcare policy. This is Plenary Session. Plenary Session is a podcast at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy, and you're listening to Season 3. On this week's episode. This week on Plenary Session, I have Atla Freetime. He is on the forefront of thinking when it comes to schools, and he's from Norway, where they're doing something quite interesting. Next, I have Professor of Oncology, Anthony Latai, Tony Latai from Dana-Farber Cancer Center. He's a spectacular physician scientist, and you won't want to miss this far-ranging discussion on all things biology and cancer and cancer biology. You won't want to miss it. If you like this podcast and want more content, follow me on Twitter at vprasadmdmph. Check out the YouTube channel, Vinay Prasad MDMPH. Patreon backers will get access to the slides for lectures I give on Plenary Session. Want to hear from us? Email us your question at plenarysessionpodcast at gmail.com. I'm back in Plenary Session, joined via Zoom by Dr. Atla Fretheim. Dr. Fretheim is from Norway. He is a practicing public health expert and epidemiologist, and he works in the university in Oslo. Dr. Fretheim, it's a pleasure to have you here. Thank you very much. Now, I didn't get all your titles right, so what is your title? You tell me again. Tell me the right so way. My, my main job is at the Norwegian Institute of Public Health, where I'm a research director, and then I'm a professor, an adjunct professor at the Oslo Metropolitan University. Wonderful. And your background is in public health? Yeah, mostly, or or uh, more research actually. I'm a medical by medical doctor by training, mm-hmm. but I've mainly been doing research uh, and systematic review stuff and that sort of thing for the last twenty years or so. Wonderful. So I'm really delighted that you can join us because you know over the last few weeks on this little podcast plenary session, we've been talking a lot about schools and COVID nineteen. And I guess uh, there's a lot of debate going on, particularly in the United States. Um, Some countries, particularly in Europe, have already reopened public schools. In the U.S., we're largely shut down in public schools. Meanwhile, private schools, daycares, uh, you know, those sorts of for-profit entities, they're running. You know, they're running because they can, they're making money. So really, it's sort of a, it's sort of a entirely segregated system of people who are wealthy enough to go to private school or poor enough to go to public school. Um, and I think um, there are there are clear downsides to the course we're on, and, and we're certainly not generating any evidence to understand any better. So, you know, you were brought to my attention because you're someone who says, I don't know all the answers, so let's put this to the test. I wonder if you might walk us through, maybe first broadly, you're thinking about schools, where they fall in, 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 in this broader space of COVID-19, and then maybe what you're working on. Yeah, no, yeah. Uh, the schools were interesting at a very early stage. I, I, I remember when we were sensing that something was going to happen in Norway early March, that everybody started to talking about what will happen with the schools. Will they close? Uh, I guess people started to predict that would happen because I don't think, well, the Chinese had, of course, closed their schools already in January, February. So we, we knew that that might be coming. And so we, we we realized very early that that would be a big contentious issue. And I remember I suggested actually quite early in March, maybe we should think about randomizing. And, and that was in an internal meeting at the Institute where I work. And um, 
I, as I expected, and which was fair enough, that was more more or less laughed off as a sort of something that wouldn't be able to happen happen in practice. But then the schools closed down more or less overnight, uh, as in most other places, and it became a big issue. Uh, also, in the, at that point in time, when we had the sort of close down, because um, uh, there there was a, a strong push from the public to close the schools. Sure. Some of the mayors around the country starting uh, closing the schools, and in the end, the, the national government didn't have much of a choice. So they, they were partly pushed, but they would have closed down soon anyway. But they closed down, I guess, a day or two earlier than they would have, simply because of public pressure. So at that time, there was yeah, a very strong push in the public to get those schools closed and the kids home safe, so, so to speak. And when uh, was this? So this was in March or April? Yeah, March, mid-March. Mid-March. And what about now? Are schools in person now? Yep, they're they're back in full swing. So, and that happened in Norway. Was we were one of the countries that opened again first. There were, uh, along with the other Scandinavian countries, we were we didn't have a long closing time. They were closed five, six, seven weeks, and then they opened. And and we of course had pretty well functioning. I think most people would say um, online learning during that time, which I guess is. An interesting difference between the U.S. and and our situation, because the argument that you have—I've I've heard your podcast yeah, where you describe the tragedy of you know kids sitting around Burger King to use their Wi-Fi yes, to right. get the, their less. I mean, okay, I mean, there, I, it's clear that a lot of kids didn't have a good time at home uh, and didn't have the best um, circumstances to learn, but but I we didn't have that situation. Right. So, um, yeah. Right. Nor- we'll Norway that. at baseline is more egalitarian than the United States. So you don't have the extremes of of poverty and maybe even the extremes of wealth that we do. We're much more. We're much. Yeah. If anything, that means public school is even more important here than it is there. I mean, you have more ladders of yeah. opportunity than we do. I, I I agree. I think that's pretty un- uncontroversial to 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 think that way. Yeah. So now that schools are in person, there are there is an yeah. upswing in cases in Norway. Are there calls to close schools yet again? Not not very strong actually. Um, so when the schools, uh, so so that we that that relates to the randomized trial you asked about that we planned because our idea was okay the schools are now closed. This is back in March. Then we start. We knew that at some stage the schools would have to reopen. They couldn't be closed forever. Uh, and then uh, we suggested a randomized trial of reopening, and that's I guess what you heard about because that that came quite far. Yes. We actually got got support uh, all the way up to the top of the Ministry of Health. The Ministry of, Minister of Health himself was very, very supportive of that idea. Yes. But in the end, the government uh, gave the thumb down for the idea, uh, basically um, saying that, and this was in late April, they said that uh, we don't think we have public support for this, so we, we won't... Uh, we won't take the political risk, I guess you could, well, they didn't use those words, but that's basically what they said. And they might have been right. I'm not sure if the public was ready because the wind changed. That was very fascinating how, how quickly the wind changed from more or less everybody or a lot of people pushing for closed schools. And then after like three or four weeks, everybody, so to speak, was, was demanding opening schools again. I see. Uh, and of course, mm-hmm. this was obviously partly related to we had very low rates of infection in Norway compared to other places. Yes. Um, so the, and now uh, it's uh, sorry for taking so time to no, no, answer no. your question, but good. then we got then we got. Uh, so now you're you're right. There have been increasing rates the last weeks, and uh, I most people wouldn't say dramatic. I have not noticed calls for closed schools, but I think they will come. I've seen some. There is more and more push for more means. There is more aggressive um, 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 infection control in the cities where you have the outbreaks. 
And there's been talk about, you know, might the schools be closed again? But there's a very high threshold for that in, in this country. And I think that's a particularity with the, the Scandinavian countries, perhaps, where, where this idea of children's right to go to school yes. is very, very strongly rooted. And yes. it has a very, very strong uh, support. And it's much more <laughs> explicitly in competition with the infection control sort of aspect. So those values are really on the table opposing each other. It's, it's not like just one or the other. Now, you know, people in the United States have pushed back on some of uh, the episodes I've done, and they said things like, you know, is it really going to hurt kids to be out of school for a year or two? What's the big deal? What's the big deal? They can just sit at home on the couch, and they can go back in a year or two. No biggie. What's the, what's the downside? Well, that's funny, because I heard your last podcast about this theme, and I was going to push back the same way. <laughs> but, of course, uh, one if you say a year or two, nobody... I think, well, it depends on how well the online schooling works, but I mean, that's almost so obviously not good for the kids that I guess you don't need research. But <laughs> if you, if, if, yeah. well, but if you, so, uh, yeah. if you talk about, you know, having the kids at home for three months with a reasonable level of online learning, uh, uh, if you look at the data, well, you don't find much about the, neg the downsides. Uh, recently, there was a commentary on this issue in science just a few weeks ago, and I was very curious to see, you know, what, what's the current state that they refer to in terms of the downside. This was a paper basically arguing, like you usually do on your, your podcast, you know, being skeptical to, to keeping the schools closed. Uh, and, and there's not much. I mean, the data is weak, so it's more a commonsensical approach, I think, when you argue uh, about the downsides. Uh, some of it is obvious, I, I agree. But, you know, we don't really know really, you know, how big a toll this has on, on the health metrics, etc. It's quite mixed, the, the stories you hear or the small sure. amount of data from here sure. and there. So I, I, it's, I still think, well, you know, I have another bias. I've spent a lot of time preparing for this trial. So I would probably argue for some sort of, um, <laughs> we don't know. And yes, we should have right. the trial. No, yes, <laughs> so, yeah, uh, right. Yeah. No, I, I, and I actually think that that is the best solution. We, we, we can talk a little bit about this public idea. But I mean, I, I mean uh, but, but I, just to come back to the schools thing, you know, yeah. when I look at the data, I think some of, you know, obviously there, there's no perfect study that has ever shut down schools in a nation like this en blanc, you know, for everybody, uh, you know, that doesn't exist. Um, the, the closest data I extrapolate to is, um, uh, you know, we do have some real time signals of, you know, uh, reports of child abuse. They're gone. You know, they, they vanished. Reports of sexual abuse, they vanished. And and one would think that child and sexual abuse they don't stop with COVID. COVID-19 doesn't go and stop child and sexual abuse somehow through its viral processes, that there, it is still going on. It's just unreported, which means more child and sex abuse. Um, I, I also think that the best data probably is the data on caliber of teacher. You know, there's a lot of economic data that says if you get a teacher that's in the top quartile versus the bottom quartile when you're a kindergartner in, a, in sort of a random process of which teacher's class you get put in, 20 years later, you're making more money, you're more likely to graduate, you're less likely to have teen pregnancy, all these things. That's from just getting a better teacher than the bottom teacher. Now we're going from, you know, average teacher to no teacher. Um, I, I would imagine it's it's got to be bigger than that signal. Um, you know, if taking high-dose statin versus low-dose statin is a benefit and you go statin versus no statin, I would imagine that that's also uh, not so good. Um, 
So, so I mean, that, that's how I come to it. And also, um, I, I do think the burden of proof has to be on those who wish to shut down. They're saying that in addition to, you know, all these measures we're taking, slowing our social movement, wearing masks, uh, hand washing, all these things we're doing, um, closing bars, closing restaurants, minimizing work. If you can work from home, you work from home, you travel less, you visit people less, you fly less, all those things. On top of that, the last thing we're going to do as an intervention, on top of all that, is shut down the only ladder, the rotten ladder of opportunity in this country country because there's no other ladders if you don't go to school there's no ladder for poor kids in this country there's nothing else it's the school or you know nothing um and and they want to close that too and so i think the burden is on them to show that there's a delta there and i think they haven't shown it but um why don't we talk about yeah go ahead yeah i I think i i I would probably agree with you uh, especially now that we know yes quite a bit more about the 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 role that the kids play in in the spread of the disease I'm not sure if I would have agreed with you in March when it was much more uncertain and we were much more worried about the, well, there were a lot, generally more anxiety about the, the risk related to COVID and, and the, the spread of it. So, but yeah, at this stage, fair enough. And that is actually the policy, I would say. What you said, what you asked, demand is basically what we're doing in Norway right now. It's, it's probably the last thing we would do is to close down the schools. Uh, it's really a high threshold. So what do we know about kids spreading the virus? What do we know about their risk of dying? What do we know about that? Yeah, right. So we, we learned, I think, quite early based on Chinese data that have been, uh, have been um, replicated, I guess, is, is that, that kids seem to, uh, well, it's quite clear that kids that are infected get le- much less severe disease. And they're probably also much, um, probably also uh, not as often infected. Uh, but that's more, less clear, I think. Uh, and what we really still are uncertain about is their how how risk how big a risk an infected child is for their environment. But it seems it seems the risk is pretty low, and especially after all the school reopenings, and we have seen relatively few outbreaks that can be linked to the opening of schools and and brought back contact tracing doesn't seem to show that kids play a central role. So I think there's. I mean, there's definitely uncertainty, and I think most people would agree that surely a child can bring the virus home and can spread it to the family surely, and to the yes. grandparents and can cause death, but this is probably relatively rare. I think most people would agree on that now, although there is definitely uncertainty still. What about teachers? Surely the child is infecting teachers in Norway left, right, and center, and teachers are suffering greatly. Is that true? Uh, no, I don't think we can say that is true. We definitely don't have the data that I'm aware of that, that would substantiate that claim. And probably to the, well, I'm not, I'm not entirely sure what data we have. The data I've seen and heard about from Norway and other places is that there doesn't seem to be an overrepresentation. But there, there's so many problems with these studies. You know, contact tracing, it's, it's not, it's not hard science. It's a lot of, you know, it's it, it's difficult to draw um, firm conclusions from a contact tracing and exercise. So, so there's some problems with that. But it it doesn't seem that we have a lot of teachers that have been infected in Norway or elsewhere. Right. So, and that's yeah. a point I keep coming to, which is that everyone is talking about the data um, and, and they find case series of one putative super spreader event. But the, the common yeah. fallacy in these super spreader events where the child is 
purportedly the super spreader, is that there are other stories that could explain all those events. Like the adults yeah. have direct contact with themselves. They could have spread it between them. It doesn't necessarily depend on the child to be the spreader. And these are all kind of anecdotes. But we do have many countries are running school and they're not having massive outbreaks. Um, that to me is more compelling data than these sort of anecdata of, of these case series. How do you feel? Yeah, no, I I agree totally, I, absolutely. Um, we we've had uh, you know a couple of outbreaks here, and it seems that you know even if you have two or three or five or ten cases in a school over a week or two, they, that might just as well be a result of spreading outside school. It may have nothing to do. You might have had just as many cases with the school closed, or even more. We we just don't know that, and it's not it's not even obvious or commonsensical that you can say that if this is linked to a school just because it happens in a school like that. So, uh, no, I, I would agree with that. And there is, you know, it's, it's, uh, the last time I looked it up, half of the children's in the world are not going to school because they're closed due to COVID, yeah. which is, I think is, it's not necessarily a tragedy, although probably it is, or I guess you can at least be worried about that. Um, but it shows that there is so much uncertainty, but there's a lot of kids, like you said, going to school and they have been doing it for, for some months now, and it doesn't seem to cause an inferno of cases that they know. And, and I think that that is the, that's the highest quality data that one could ask for. One has literally opened the gate on the dam and water is pouring into the river, uh, you know, and then you're asking, oh, how do I know that that dam is actually holding the water back up there? And you're like, well, yeah. it's just literally, you've literally seen what happens. And in this case, you know, we've opened the dam up and it didn't flood the villages. You know, it didn't lead to all these things. We've allowed them to, to go to school. Um, let yeah, me ask, yeah, absolutely. Let yeah. me ask you this. You, I mean, I actually agree with you that the step above this is randomized control trial. Um, you know, you, you talked a little bit about the public appetite, you know, and, and that's something that yeah. guides, you know, this is something that I keep coming back to where um, in the United States, people blame some scientist and they said, you know, hey, this scientist paper is what led people to open up or led people to do this. This scientist paper led people to do that. And I was like, no, nah, I don't think so. People, people are an unusual thing. It, it's this huge collective entity that's sucking in the media and giving it back to you. And so if you fill media reports with little kid went to school, got sick, grandma got sick and died, you tell that one anecdote on the media, show videos of the family, public it's, sentiment's going to change like that. It's just going to change on a dime. If you show data, if you show a video of kids coming out of Norway school right now, laughing, playing, public sentiment's going to go the other way. It's going to go the other way. Public sentiment is a bellwether for what we put on the airwaves. We control the public sentiment. And then we say, oh, the public, does, the public doesn't want this. The public doesn't want a randomized trial because we have poisoned the random, we've poisoned the equipoise. We told them it was all, it was bad. It was going to kill people. We told them it was good. You know, so I think it's such an interesting thing. The public is, um, and the media you know, it's a rope with a noose on both ends. They control each other. And then we ask, you know, why does the public have these beliefs? Um, in your case, the public in both directions, on the shutdown way, you could have done randomization. On the opening way, you could have done randomization. In both cases, equipoise was lost. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I, I think we, we, we could convince the decision makers in our, in our case that there was equipoise, that there was sufficient uncertainty to, to, to warrant a trial. But the problem was, uh, and I think that illustrates a common problem that you're alluding to is, is how the public looks at things. I agree that the media, the way things are covered in the media probably has a huge influence, but at the same time, 
there you have we have a tendency to the polarization that you have you know a hundredfold more in the U.S. Right. But we have tendencies here, uh, especially in social media, but you also see it in in op eds and or commentaries uh, in in the papers that you have the tendency of the 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 group of people who are very concerned and thinks that uh, you know the infection control should be much much harder. And and you have the opposite view. Yes. Um, and and this is uh, it's interesting because when, when we propose then a randomized trial, both sides. I'm I'm simplifying. Yeah, now. No, no, but both you're right. Yeah, are, yeah, both sides. Both sides are against it. Yes. You know because they don't believe in equipoise. Both you know in separate ways, yes. which to me is probably illustrates the whole point that we could and and. Oftentimes, you know, you get the feeling that you know people have made up their mind. It's it's like politics, right? If 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 someone has, if you know, if a politician or a decision maker has made up his or her mind for 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 good or bad reasons, you know, a trial, I don't. Know, it's hard to say what difference it would make, and and certainly they wouldn't be particularly interested in running a trial. And this is this is one of the barriers I find in, in getting these things done. And I'm not just talking about the, the elected policymakers, but also the whole bureaucracy yes. uh, and parts of the public who have um, not economic, but interest in, in a way in that this, you know, running a trial, it's, it's, um, it's a nuisance. Uh, it, it interferes with daily running of things. Uh, now we have an infection control. We have a situation, you know, we have, we have an pandemic. And, you know, getting research into that is it's quite, I find it quite um, challenging because uh, people are running running the system now in a good way and very consciously, you know, doing, doing a, a good job in controlling things. And a trial in the midst of that is, is um, yeah, it, it, it stands in the machinery, so to, speak. so to speak. Um, you know, it's interesting though, but I, I said, I, I alluded to the public, which is not divided, but there is, ten, there is a tendency. But also in the bureaucracy, there is a tendency with a division. You have groups of, of um, people who are mainly concerned, partly from their, what should I say, from their heart, but also partly because it's their job to focus on the need for and the right of kids to go to school. And then you have others, those who are in charge of infection control, they have the opposite view. So you have that sort of polarization is too strong a word. You no, have that yeah. division within the government as well. So See, it's, it's quite yeah. difficult to get support for, for yes. first, okay, do we agree that there's equipoise that we don't know? And then, okay, so we should then perhaps run a trial. But we find it's very hard to get that sort of um, consensus around that idea. Yeah, you know, we're, we're so skewed in the U.S. I've, I've sort of lost this sense because in the U.S. there are all these powerful vested interests that say keep it closed and then the places that say keep it open, that, that side is very weak because the people who really have an interest in keeping it open, they, they can find a school that's open for their kid. They move their kid right. out of their school. They take yeah. their kid out and they take their yeah. kid out, then they don't care anymore. They lose that skin mm. in the game. They lose that incentive. But let me, yeah. let me say what I think the core problem here is whether you talk about politicians who I think are abysmal at the sense that politicians, I mean, a breed of people that thinks they know the answer to complex social problems without ever needing to study anything prospectively. Just a bunch of morons. I mean, you have to, I mean, I really have a low respect on both sides of the issue. They really are so sure that they alone know. I mean, you're talking about a trillions of dollars of the economy and how to handle healthcare in the US and everyone knows they have the answer. I have the perfect plan. You have to completely know nothing about science and history to be so cocksure you know the answer when you don't know anything. Okay, so that's the problem with politicians. I, and, and, and they're from disciplines where they don't learn this process. They don't know anything about science. They're very infrequently scientists, and they infrequently have the experience of science. 
The next problem, the public. The public knows nothing of randomized control trials. It's, they've never been taught the randomized control trial. They don't know why it exists. The journalists don't cover it. The journalists themselves may not know it. There are few now that are finally learning it, but 20 years ago, they didn't really appreciate the importance of it. The journalists still cover the garbage, confounded, time zero, plague problem, observational studies. They cover, you know, berries improve your longevity and Finnish saunas are wonderful. They cover garbage studies. They're miseducating the public. The public knows nothing about it. And the education system in this country is so weak anyway. So nobody ever educated them in science in the first place. So they don't know anything about this. Uh, And I think even some intellectuals who enter this space from epidemiology or theoretical mathematical modeling backgrounds, they also have not been confronted by the challenge of empiricism, that everything you think can easily blow up in your face. So that's why there's a few of us, and, and many of us are often cl- have some clinical background, and we know that you need randomized trials. Why do we know? Because we went in clinic and for 10 years we did something and our patients told us they felt better and we felt good about doing it. We physically were doing it and then randomized trial after randomized trial came out and showed we actually didn't help things and may have made things worse. We have that as in our, in our gut. We've been gut punched by randomized trials. We've been gut punched and we know that, oh my God, I thought that worked. It made perfect sense. It should have worked. It didn't work. And you get gut punched 20 times in your career, 30 times. And I've been gut punched more than most because I've done studies where we collect the gut punches. You know, we've surveyed the literature to get some sense of how often these occur. And they occur with staggering frequency that everyone, you know, and sometimes I read the study and I think, of course, this was going to be positive. And I get to the results and, oh my God, it was negative. Really? Really? Um, so anyway, with that background, I mean, so teaching people the importance of randomized trials, we need to like spiritually connect with them in some way to show them that things you believe, they can often be wrong. And if you really are an advocate, you commit to doing good and you let data guide the good and you let high quality data do the guiding. Um, so back to this issue, I wonder if you might walk us through the randomized trial you proposed, how was it going to be done? Cluster? What's the sample size? What are the endpoints? What does it look like, the one you were proposing? Yeah. So that's uh, that's one of the big challenges is is uh, the last thing you mentioned there is a, a sample size. But yeah, let me walk you through it. We, we That's where we really struggled was uh, we realized how, how many uh, students or, or pupils we would need. And, and uh, yes, it was a cluster a design that we we opted for simply to to avoid uh, spillover effects because you need you need uh, groups of people who uh, you will measure if you're going to measure uh, spread of the disease or spread of the infection uh, and then another thing is that we we aren't mainly interested in spread among kids because exactly. that's not a big problem exactly we're interested in spread into the community so the first thought obviously was to um, measure spread um, the rate in each cluster and we thought about um, municipalities first so we have like uh, 350 or so uh, municipalities in Norway and we yes. thought about okay let's you know we we, uh, we had uh, the Minister of Health uh, and just a side point there your 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 speech your negative speech about politicians yes this guy actually understood the point okay he said that he, under- <laughs> so he understood why we need a randomized trial I see. I'll give him that I see um, but anyway so uh, we can <laughs> But then we realized that the rate of infection in Norway was far too low to be able to measure anything of value if we used the whole population um, as the the denominator. Yes. Uh, Because that would make it, you know, you would would need so many infections. 
So that was a big, big um, um, problem. So we uh, luckily in Norway we have quite good registries, um, so we could we we plan to use uh, routine data on registered infections. And what we opted for in the end was to use positive the proportion of tests among household members of pupils as the outcome. Which is, you know, far from perfect, but uh, probably the best you could do when, uh, in our in our judgment, when you weigh, um, yeah, all the downside and upside of different types of outcomes. So it's 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 an attempt to measure the risk of spread from the school uh, out in the community if you have open schools versus um, closed schools. And then, of course, um, along the lines of what we discussed before, we would also have lots of other outcomes that are not about the infection, uh, about psychological health. About learning outcomes, etc. Uh, so that was that was the idea. But we we ended up um, actually opting for, which was not the best thing. But we opted for randomizing schools instead of municipalities, yes. which increases the risk of you know the clusters become smaller. Yes. So you have a high risk of spillover effects. Yes. 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 Uh, but uh, on the other hand, it was a power versus spillover effect um, yes. trade-off. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And so and- we would have wished to have all of Europe with us and do the same thing, but that was. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> But yeah, and, and, and I mean, obviously, there there's several keys here. Uh, one key, let's drill down a little bit on is um, uh, the end the end end point for. I mean, there have to be multiple endpoints. We you you know you've nicely articulated that they have to be endpoints yeah. for children well being and COVID problem. These are the endpoints. Yes. COVID problem. Yeah. It can't be sticking swabs in noses of low risk people and finding PCR positivity. It just can't be that. Um, asymptomatic, low-risk people getting PCR positive, that's not the bad outcome. The bad outcome is people dying and people being hospitalized and having long-term sequela. That's the bad outcome. The, the, Absolutely. The, yes, go on. But. Yes. <laughs> yes. No, I, yes. I've, I've heard you argue yes. that on previous uh, podcasts. And, and, you know, that's, that's a point that you cannot um, be against because the real outcomes, you know, whether people are infected doesn't yes. matter as such. We, we would definitely, I definitely agree. Nobody can disagree with that. Lag, yeah. But uh, on the other hand, this is we have such a power yes, okay, problem okay. in these studies that if you if you if you demand death by COVID as your outcome, uh, I mean, you know, I got to find another <laughs> job. But there's no way that I can. No, no, but, but I guess I guess uh, I guess in, that's in true that. in Norway where cases were low. But in the United States, it's gangbusters. We right. can get. We have the power for it. We are. We have all the power you need because we got tons of cases. We have rampant community spread. Yeah, we we did, of course, yes. include those things as outcomes. But we yes, didn't I, 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 I agree with you. I agree. With you. We did. We didn't expect to be able to show that. But yes, I, I totally agree. This is uh, this is an important issue. But I think I think this is uh, you know interesting. Uh, what outcome you should use to monitor the situation in the community? And yes, you that's the key. Yes, um, measures. And 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 that's that that would be you know in Norway the current policy is to follow yes. infection rates and use that as a guide, um, and the and you could argue we should wait for hospitalizations, um, and uh, but the 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 worry here of course is that that might be too late that get, things get out of hand. The policy here is when things start to rise. Bang! You, you, you. I'm, I'm, this is not my idea, and I'm not necessarily, you know, against it or supporting it. But it's that's the policy we have that we uh, initiate quite strict uh, measures when there is a local rise, in the hope to get control within a few weeks, so we can open get up again, having yes. more normal lives. That's the the concept. So we we currently just 
a look at the infection rates and not the clinical outcomes. Yes, as a monitoring uh, yes. and I think tool. most places are doing that. I think um, it has challenges because not all infections are created equal, as we you know, as we as we all agree, and yeah, also yeah, sure. uh, the risk of overreacting, um, and also. Um, uh, the the fact that the denominator is just constantly in flux because what was you know wh yeah. what the course of the early epidemic was is really a matter of mystery because testing was so scant especially in this country um, so we really don't have a sense and also yeah. country by country you know I see all these country to country comparisons they're not counting everything the same they're not counting deaths the same they're not counting no. hospitalizations the same they're not counting cases the same so it's very difficult to no. say Sweden is better than Norway is better than Denmark is worse than this is that I mean we're not counting it the same so how can we make these comparisons what are your thoughts no, i totally i totally agree except i mean we have to pragmatic be to pragmatic at the same time if if there's any point yes. of doing comparisons but if but but i agree i mean my impression is that the the the, the usefulness of comparing uh, improves the harder the endpoint becomes. So comparing the infection rate is yes. useless because the, the testing sequence yes. is totally different. So that that doesn't make. But and but I guess COVID or at least deaths as such or total deaths that's probably comparable, but not very useful because you don't see the the, the big changes usually. Uh, and then COVID deaths, I guess, is second best. But I agree. I mean, it's 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 well known that that is also registered in different ways. So it, it's it's a challenge to compare. Uh, yeah. yeah, totally agree. So your school randomized trial is where? It's on the back burner. It's not being done now. Schools are back in business. It's no. I'll, I'll, our main problem. Well, well, one of the main problems with that, this trial is ethics regulation okay, let's in talk our about country. That, yeah. Uh, yeah, uh, I didn't know this, and actually nobody else did, I think, either. But we have we got a new health research law a few years ago in Norway, and the wording of that is such that it actually makes probably makes this sort of really? trial what? illegal without without informed consent from every individual who is affected. And I don't think regulation in other yes. countries are like that. And it, and I don't think most ethicists would demand that, but some would. But I think this is probably um, a glitch in the regulation yes. in Norway. So we're, what we're doing now is we're trying to get to clarify whether we're, it's legal to run such a trial. Most people we speak to think that it should be and that it's too bad if the regulation is worded clumsy in a, in a way so that it's not allowed. Because you, you can do of course, medical research without informed consent in certain cases, but it's quite tightly regulated in the law. And for this type of case uh, that we're designing, uh, there is no exception mentioned in the law. Thus, you can't do it. So that's our legal. It's uh, the irony is right now. Um, we're having a opening school and closing school affects lots of people who don't consent. But doing it in a staggered, randomized yeah. fashion so you can learn from it, that affects people who don't consent. So therefore, that's for illegal. Absolutely. That's. Uh, I mean, we could speak about that, but we would be speaking to our own congregation. I, I totally agree. It's. It's. Uh, it's. It's. A, it's ironic that you can experiment without learning, uh, but you cannot experiment with learning. That's. Um, it's. It's a tragedy. But yeah, that's. Um, that's. That's the way it is. So the once. We, but in parallel, we are working. So the idea is now is we're trying to get a consensus or a support for the idea of having a plan ready so that we can initiate a randomized trial of closing schools if the authorities 
think that now is the time to consider closing schools. So if the infection rates go that far up, that this actually comes on the agenda, we would like to have a plan there on the table already that everyone has more or less agreed to. Okay, now we push on the randomized button. But, you know, we need to delete, well, we're far from there uh, yet, but I um, I hope we can have the plan. I'll obviously, I, I obviously don't hope that we will need to push the button, that the rates will be stay low. But if if infections rise, I, I really hope we can do the trials so we can learn something. I think it's a tragedy that, that it, it's such a mess all over the world. And I'm still almost shocked that there is no other, no, that's not true, very few other initiatives to do the same. I mean, this isn't rocket science no. at all. I mean, it's, it's, it's just very simple, but it's a huge, it's a huge logistical, political, etc. exercise. There, there is, um, there are other people, uh, there's a group in, in England who has prepared a protocol for something similar. Uh, I don't think they have succeeded in making it happen or becoming close like us, but they're a very similar approach. We had some communication, but there is very little happening. There's, there's very little happening in terms of, of large scale infection control measures and trials. Yes, I'm, uh, I'm going to come to that. I'm going to come to that. Yeah, but I mean, I mean, yeah. I, I think that right. um, you know, if we reflect back on Europe uh, during the years of the bubonic plague, the plague that rampaged it. I mean, you know, came and went for centuries. Really, I mean, there's many bouts of it, and and most of the people, most of the civilizations, they did not even know the means by which it was spread. So many putative ideas came and went. Um, surely there were, I'm sure, some people who said that perhaps we could institute some rigorous ways to sort this out, figure out what's driving this, what's spreading. Um, but people said that, you know, we, we can't, we either have to do things or not do things. We wanted to do it, not to do it. Um, here we are, 2020. It's, I think it's important to remember, um, we are not that different than the animal that dealt with the plague in medieval times. We're the same frail, you know, person. We are barely more advanced than them. We know a few things more than them. But we could easily do these studies that would sort out tremendous things. We don't do those studies. Thousand years from now, they'll look back on us and they'll say they knew about randomized trials and they never ran a single one. They're really primitive people back then. They, you know, this is the way we look back at people on the medieval plagues, that they didn't even know how it was spread. Um, and they did all these things that had nothing to do with it. And, you know, and, and the way they look back on people from thousands of years ago who sacrifice goats when there's infections that spread, they think that's going to help. Um, you know, it's all the same really in my mind, uh, yeah. an animal, a human being animal, uh, who doesn't want to use the reason faculty and uses the um, emotion faculty. Is, it, do you, is there any difference? Well, no, I, 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 I agree. That, but I guess to add to the complexity to, to your yes. uh, description of humankind yes. nowadays, uh, I, I'd say that, um, well, to take COVID specifically, we do... I think we can say that we know that keeping yes, people apart reduces yes, the spread of disease. Yes. That we know. And, and, and that makes it sort of, that's in a way also a barrier to research because people sort of think that, okay, we know that. Yes. So let's just do that. Let's just keep people apart. And then things are, you know, yes, as but, much you as know, we can. But of course, there are a lot, you know, we've been, yes, we've been yes. touching upon all the, the, the failures of that way if, of thinking. If we, but, but that's, if we could put easy. everyone in a separate room for 28 days, it will be gone, I think. Yeah. You know, 28 days. Everyone yeah. in a separate room. Um, and so we know what will 
Well, maybe yeah. maybe longer. Maybe yeah. a little bit longer. Oh, maybe maybe, yeah. maybe forty two. Well, yeah. You know something. You know. You, you, okay. Everyone. No, everyone. Yes. Right. Absolutely, absolutely everyone. Absolutely yes, everyone in sure. separate room. Yeah. Some yeah. period of time. Not that long. Yeah. Weeks. It will be gone yeah. forever. It'll. It will. It will be. It will. It yeah, will sure, have done sure. its thing. Um. Uh, uh, yeah. So we know what stops it. However, the 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 arrogance of man is to think that. The, the thing we're implementing is not putting everyone in a room and closing the door. We're implementing saying things like stay at home, closing the school, um, restricting yeah. grocery stores. The things we're implementing are five steps removed from actually putting everyone in their room. Um, and, and the arrogance mm. is that we know that those things have no countervailing effects and they don't do other things and we know what must happen. That's, I think, the arrogance. Let's talk about other non-pharmacologic yeah. interventions. Um, you know, the pharmacology, yeah. we're good about that. We got a new drug, a new pill. Um, you know, we're good about doing randomized trials in those settings. Actually, not as good as we could have been. We could have been better, I think. We could have done more faster. Um, we did a lot of wasteful observational studies. Um, but non-pharmacologic interventions, um, which, uh, which yeah. what are we doing? What about, what about the masks in Denmark? What's, what's going on there? Yeah, there are a couple. There are a couple. Uh, th that's you know, that's quite impressive. That's um, on the top of my mind. That's um, I'll have to brag about one study in okay. Norway, though. In addition, there was a training training studio training center trial in Norway, which was uh, quite early. It was before the summer. Uh, but yeah, the face mask trials. There, I think they're completed, but the results haven't been yes. been displayed, or we haven't heard <laughs> what the what results thought, are yeah. yet. That, yeah. That'll be very interesting. I'm I'm a little bit worried because they're individual randomized trials. Yeah. So um, yeah, they well, there, there's a yeah, there's yes. that's the dilemma. I mean, they they you lose power with the cluster trial. They had oh, I think they had almost a million yes. people in one of those trials uh, in Denmark. Well, one was in Denmark, the other was in Guinea. But but with uh, some Danish support, so the same, I, maybe the same group. Or, I'm not sure if it's the same group, but the same sort of design. But what you lose then, if you don't have a, a cluster design, is you you don't detect the effect of hindering spread from people. I mean, if you randomize people to wear a mask, you can measure the effect of not being um, sure. getting the the virus onto you. But but I guess most people probably think that the main effect is hindering people from spreading it. Um, and that's uh, and then you you would need a cluster trial. So there is a risk that those RCTs from Denmark will show little or no effect, and that can be interpreted, you know, in different ways and and, and potentially negatively if we believe that face masks have uh, an effect. And I guess most people do believe, although we're very uncertain about the the, the effect size uh, in practice. But yeah, and then uh, I must mention. Uh, yeah. Since I'm on your podcast, that we had this trial in Norway where um, we randomized individual yes. members of gyms to be allowed yes. to return, uh, which was I, I I I'm allowed to brag because I was I was only very I had very okay. small role in that trial, so I'm not I don't I can't take any credit. But um, two two interesting things with that trial. One is that it was um, it was you know a logistical um, you know really good. Good stuff. Within a few, within a week or two, they had the whole system set up. They had testing. They had everything set up, and they ran the trial over three weeks. The problem was again the unpredictability of the pandemic and uh, the power. There was one COVID nineteen case among all the four thousand participants in the trial over the weeks that it went. So there was. You know, it's very difficult to interpret. At least it was not. You know directly applicable to other circumstances. So that was a, the challenge. But it, it showed that it's possible. And was, I think, the first attempt 
doesn't matter if it was the first, but it was a real attempt to try to measure uh, those types of you interventions. Know, y- y- but, uh, but apart from that, yeah. trials, uh, you mentioned the, the face masks and that study, and uh, then there are a few attempts at the schools. Apart from that, I don't think there are some smaller, you know, you can measure different types of masks in the hospital, etc. But those, those big population um, directed uh, interventions, no, I don't, I don't think there's think, a yeah. single yeah. one. And that, if I may, if I may, that's something that interests me, being, you know, a promoter like you of randomized trials for years. If we, in practice, cannot run randomized trials, what yeah. do we do? Of course, we don't give up. We keep pushing. But um, um, I'm. this is a sort of headache for me because then we either we sort of keep pushing or we give up or we resort to what we would typically call weaker designs. And that's that's obviously yes. a dilemma. But we're, we're – uh, and I, I like to pitch, if I may, I'd like to – to tell you about what we're doing, and no, then you can thrash it if you wanna. But we're <laughs> no, we we got the we saw. Well, we were sort of depressed because we couldn't get this trial going, and then we realized that there's another contentious area. This was during the summer when the universities were about to reopen. Now you know this yes. very well from the yes. U.S. This is a very yes. hot potato over very hot, um, yeah. there, isn't it? It was not that hot here, but it was it was an issue because the heads of the universities and the colleges were. You know, the the students are coming back in mid-August, two weeks from now. They, I discussed with them uh, at the end of July or early August, some of them. Uh, what do we do? You know, do we keep it closed? Do we do uh, in person? Do we do online? And um, and I was not part. Sorry, I was not part of the discussion, but I heard that they had discussed this, and most of them ended with a hybrid uh, solution. So they prioritized some students for in-person um, instruction. And some patients were prioritized for online. And then I thought, just randomize uh-huh. that. Yeah, yeah, we have to. Well, that was that wasn't possible. Okay. That was not practically possible. It, just also I the see. law sure, that I mentioned. Course. You know, I it see. wouldn't be possible. So uh, I we we uh, we decide we opted for uh, just doing yes. a cohort Natural or whatever you want to call it study. study. Sure. And exactly. So we have and that we have amazingly. We're not finished yet. We have. Thousands and thousands of pieces of data on infection rate and instruction and not in person, not in person. And it'll be very interesting to see what that shows. But how how useful it will be for policymaking is, you know, it's unclear. Obviously, if we get very, very convincing results one way or another, it might be helpful. And we are also including other outcomes so we can compare, you know, well-being and that sort of thing among students. Um but uh, but this is you know we're spending quite it's not very resource demanding but we're you know we're asking thousands of students to answer surveys online every two weeks that's for the great. whole semester yeah that's a great um, study but let me touch on a few yeah. of these things so let's talk about the gyms I I mean I, I guess I'll just say um, I I applaud it it was brilliant um, the fact that the 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 infection rate was so low has been used as a criticism. That's not a criticism. I mean, that's just the way it is. And if anything, it does show that it's safe to reopen if the infection rate is low. I, that's why exactly. It's QED. Um, okay. So, but it was brilliant, and it would have worked brilliantly in 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 our country, the United States, where we were knee deep in infections. We could have asked that question. Um, the masks. There's such a um, tunnel vision on masks. There's so many other things people do and could do to slow the spread from hygiene, such as the availability of hand sanitizers, plexiglass divisions in grocery stores, face 
shields. These can all be randomized, but we were just so obsessed with masks. And I think it's in part because the advocates, they they somehow champ. It was a mentally seductive idea. It's so seductive that if you cover your your beak, um, you know, you're not going to spill it, spill the virus everywhere. And and it's it's a visible sign that you take it seriously. People don't wear it. You know, they don't take it seriously. Look at them. They're not even wearing it. It's visible. It's a badge of courage. It's like wearing, you know. Uh, that American flag pin in your lapel. It just shows that you really care. Um, yeah. And so that's why I think it took off and not necessarily that it had the strongest data. In fact, hand washing is much stronger data. And sometimes I'm walking around, it's a hell of a time to find enough sanitizer to put on my hands. Where is it? It's hiding. They should make that more available. Anyway, um, but back to your point. Why is it illegal in Norway? And why is no one running these trials? I think the root of it is the same root, which is people do not really understand why we need randomized trials. They think that these alternative forms of evidence, um, you know, these sorts of retrospective comparisons that are going to come, I can imagine there's going to be as many retrospective comparison studies of COVID-19 as there are people infected with COVID-19. It's going to be in the decades to come. It's going to be a slew. And if you want, you'll find whatever you want. I promise you. Schools were good. Opening schools was good. There'll be 10 retrospective studies that show that. Closing schools would have been better. 25 studies will show that. And in fact, the number of retrospective studies that will show what you want will be identical to the public perception of what should have been done. You know, it's going to be just a, an opinion poll and a self-fulfilling prophecy. It's just going to be whatever you want it to be. Um, people don't really get why we do randomized studies. They don't really understand. And too many people in the academy are in the business of doing the other studies. Their whole careers are doing the other studies. If they really believed in their gut, that the fallibility of the other studies, the test characteristics of the other studies, the, the truth validity of the other studies, they wouldn't spend a career doing it. So they cannot believe that, you know? Um, what are your thoughts on this? This is really the core um, philosophical issue I think we struggle with in, in, in science and medicine, which is that the law is written in a way by people who don't know randomized trials, why they're done. You know, th that's why your law is the way it is, right? Yeah, well, I... <laughs> I'm not sure if that is the reason why the law, but it, it is, is the way it is. But it is definitely uh, an important reason why it's so hard to get these trials done anyway, because we need a lot of political yes. and public support yes. to get those trials done. And I agree, there, there is the lack of, of understanding or, or interest or, or whatever on, on the usefulness of those. And I agree also that the, the, the enthu the, I, I also feel that there's a too low enthusiasm in, enthusiasm in academia for running these large-scale trials that we need. And, uh, and also, I, I agree that we, we do not need the, the, the tsunami of retrospective studies that we can expect over <laughs> yeah. the coming years. So we will have a, we'll have like a modeling. Now we have, yeah, we're in the model modeling the papers, phase. So <laughs> the retrospective study. Yeah. Yeah, the model. <laughs> But so um, no, that 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 is a pity. And um, but I'm, I'm I'm yeah we're we're really struggling to 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 find the key how to 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 get this through. I'm I'm feeling that there is a progression. I feel that there is more understanding, more interest. Uh, there is real debate in the in the public atmosphere uh, or public sphere about these things. But um, yeah, um, I'm I'm not I'm not. I'm not sure. Let me ask you um, this. Yeah. Even the even I mean it's 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 easy easy to understand that it's controversial or or people get divided about um, a trial of school closure because it directly affects people. You know, so I have to keep my child at home for right, a month right, extra right, right, for right, you right. to run this trial. Yeah, get right, the, right. You know, <laughs> but 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 on the other hand, it's uh, it's it's 
I'll give you another example. Right now, there's this. Uh, there's some uh, some countries in Europe. They are changing their quarantine policy for children for schools. So I, what I, from what I hear, France has just um, implemented a policy where they they don't bother with um, quarantining, or I don't even think they do contact tracing. Yes, right. So, right, 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 right. They right. just said. They send the school home, the kid home, probably in isolation, and maybe they probably they quarantine the family. I yes. don't, I don't know the details. Uh, but but for all other countries like Norway, we you know we would quarantine the whole class or the cohort or the bubble or whatever you call it. Sometimes yes. the whole school. That should also be randomized. Absolutely, cohort. absolutely, be- absolutely, absolutely. That should be randomized. And, but I I've suggested it, and uh, you know. Um, let me give you another example of some things people tell me. Um, you know, I, I'm a I'm a big proponent of randomized trials, and 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 I would say there's there's really only um, you know two spaces where you don't need randomized trials. So one are um, you know that that BMJ article on parachutes. You don't need a randomized trial for a parachute. But what is a parachute? If you jump out of airplane without parachute, ninety nine point nine 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 percent risk of death in five minutes. If you jump out of plane with parachute, ninety nine point nine 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 risk of living. Okay, that effect size. Get the fuck out of here. There's no effect size like that in medicine. That's the best effect size ever. That's the effect size of having a gun to your head. Pull the trigger. No, pull the trigger. That's the effect size. You can survive a gunshot wound to the head, but you're not gonna, most likely. Okay, that effect size, you don't You don't need randomized trials. You do it one gunshot wound to the head. Okay, this gun, gun is gonna kill people. Okay, the other extreme is people who say, they, they use these as examples of why we can't do randomized trial for school opening. They say, we don't have a randomized trial of a parachute, ergo, we can't do it here. And I'm like, and I wanna tell them, are you out of your mind? You think the effect size of school opening is 99.999% with on a hundred? percent mortality rate on everybody in 10 minutes? No, it's not even close to that. It's going to be a very marginal effect size. And so you need this to separate what's real from fake. The other way they screw it up, I hear, there was never a randomized trial of smoking. Well, I say, we don't do randomized trials to investigate putative harms. There's never a randomized trial that if I drink a glass of benzene, I'm going to be sick. Or randomized trial if I eat poison or I get shot in the chest. There's no randomized trial that says if I jump off a building, I'm going to die. But we don't do things. We don't do randomized trials of putative harms. We do randomized trials of putative benefits. And in these cases, you are all saying, your claim is that school closure or opening, quarantining everybody or some people, you believe that is a putative benefit. The effect size at best, is modest to marginal. You don't know if there's an effect over doing the alternative. And in those situations, there's only one thing that will answer the question, and that is randomization, and everything else will fall short. That is a randomization is a hammer, and this is that nail, and we have to pound it. And 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 so I think people, the fact that like, you know, deans of public health schools have used these straw man arguments of parachutes and smoking to argue why we shouldn't do a randomized trial of vertebroplasty tells me that if the deans of public health schools don't know this, then the average person certainly doesn't know this, and they certainly are confused about randomization. But anyway, we could go on and on about this. I want to talk about a different topic, um, and that topic is this. You're in Norway. That is a Nordic country, and you're next to Finland, and you are next to Sweden, you're next to Denmark. People love comparing those four countries um, and deciding who is the failure and who is the success story. And I want to know from your point of view, as a researcher in Norway, how do you judge Sweden? Um, did they do anything wrong, anything right? Did they make mistakes? Did they do anything smart? Um, uh, can we learn anything from them? Um, I would be very careful to learn a lot from either Norway, nor Finland, okay. nor Sweden, or anyone at this moment, because I, I think it's there's so many unknowns. Uh, I mean, clearly uh, they have had a big 
tragedy in terms of uh, the rate of deaths among old people in Sweden. That's, I mean, that's, I, I think we can say that's a fact. I mean, they've had several times as many dead, uh, even if you obviously adjust for population size, as all the other neighboring countries. But uh, why? I mean, that's yes. the interesting question. What is the yes. cause of this difference? And and the, the popular sort of narrative is that it's because they didn't um, uh, initiate as tough means yes. as the other countries. They initiated sort of the same means, but there were more recommendations and not yes. regulations. Uh, and that was the main difference. They said, you know, please stay at home, keep distance, uh, don't go to the bar. Uh, yes. But they didn't forbid yes. it like we did. Um, and the, and the, then people say that that's that's the cause. It might might be a, an important contributing factor. It might be. It might be a very very big factor. But I'm I'm yes. not sure about that. And I don't think we have the data to say that this is obvious. Um, oh, and um, you know, they 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 might have had the infection a couple of weeks before us. So it it was sort of out of control before they can initiate these voluntary means. That's one theory. There are other theories out there, and it's mainly an issue about um, not being able to protect the. Yes, the I think that's and that's the key. Yeah, uh, right, but right. Yeah, but but still, I you mean, know, proof, uh, proof ways to so settle was, this will be someday. These cell phones are wonderful GPS trackers. We will have very detailed tracker information on Norway, Finland, and Sweden. And if it re and if it is revealed that actually the behavior, whether or not you had a mandate or whether or not you had a strong suggestion, if the behavior was more or less comparable, that would be one thing that erodes the sort of yeah. causal claim that it was the mandate that did the mm -hmm. that was required. Right? Yeah. And there were there have been some yes. data along those lines comparing, for example, the rate at which Swedish citizens cross yes. Yes. community lines compared to Norway. And I believe, and I'm on thin ice here, but I believe that also in the early phase in March, April, that they did have more movement than we had. But uh, so there are some things that indicate, probably some things that indicate that being a, a more tough at that time probably would have been a better. Um, approach, but but I, this yes. is very uncertain. I would I would I would be very skeptical to anyone who yes, knows the answer and especially to that. from the way in which we have to look at the data. Um, now, the other thing I yeah. wanted to ask you about was um, the other thing I wanted to ask you about was vaccines. Um, it is possible that a vaccine is approved in the next you know whatever period of time. It's possible that its efficacy is maybe fifty percent, maybe it's lower, forty percent, thirty percent. It won't be given to everyone right away. We're still going to struggle with these decisions. So a vaccine entering in the world in, in November, how does it change your thinking on this issue? How does it change your, the need for randomized trials? What, what are you thinking about when you think about that? Yeah, uh, yeah. I, you know, I've been thinking about that. You know, how much time should we spend on doing randomized trial of infection control measures yes. if we get a vaccine that stops the whole thing? Uh, but I think the, there's... Uh, Clearly, I would be uh, courageous enough to say it's clearly uncertain how quickly an effective, uh, sufficiently effective vaccine will be in place that to make uh, these types of measures, infection control measures, unnecessary. We're still far from there, I think. So, um, and and the opinions are so so split. I mean, I, I'm not sure what the most optimistic estimate now is not not to have a vaccine that's one thing but to have a vaccine that is has been disseminated right. sufficiently to get you know the oh the don't good say old it <laughs> it's a taboo word it's a taboo <laughs> word <laughs> but but um yeah so so i mean i, I it's 
probable that that will take so much time still that that we definitely need to know more about these uh, tough the the usefulness both downside and upsides of these more tough infection control, control did, measures. In my did opinion. the goalposts change in the pandemic? I remember the discussion in February and March where people said that when a pandemic spreads like this, spread is inevitable. It is inevitable that it will spread, and all we can do is flatten the curve, change the trajectory of the spread, but we have to allow the same number of cumulative number of cases will accrue over time. I mean, that was one leading theory. Somewhere along the way, the flatten the curve idea became the idea that with these measures, whack on and off switch, lockdowns, school closure, these sorts of measures, we can eradicate the virus. Did 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 it change, or or it, or was it always this strategy? What, and what is the strategy, if one were to articulate it? Yeah, well, I, I think it's, uh, and this is where the, the, the two yes. groups, the polarized, the polarized group, interpret things differently. Um, I think some would argue that, that at uh, a very early stage, the idea was that we need to flatten the curve and then let it sort of burn through yes. the, the population. But the wording typically was we need to let it, we need to achieve herd immunity. And implicitly or not, that meant either a vaccine or just, sure. you know, burn yes. through the population. Um, uh, and and that was seems to have been a source of some of the polarization. I I think at least the the, the little we see yes. of it here in Norway is that the the whether it's, there's a lot of discussion. What was yes. said in February? What did people yes. actually mean? Uh, but right now there's I don't think I, I I the policy the idea now is to flatten the curve, keep it you know down when it starts to bump up we keep it down waiting for the vaccine that's, that's the new strategy that's the whole, so suppression until vaccine yeah. yeah and no yes nobody i don't think anybody you're right there were some people who thought that it would just <laughs> go away if we just were had a really tough yeah. like you said if we really close the borders 100 percent and and, and that's what new zealand thinks i think it isn't that what new zealand was doing away. yeah yeah Right. And we heard stories about Vietnam and some other countries who ma managed somehow. And of course, China, yeah. uh, where, you know, it was said that they, they did it uh, without a vaccine. But um, and uh, yeah, well, some people seem to argue that way still. But I, I, the common the common yes. thinking now is we're trying until to keep the vaccine. Until the, the, the problem gets. with China is one. I yeah. mean, half the figures you can't trust. I mean, we don't know the true wave of no. the epidemic in China. And two, China is capable no. of instituting lockdown at a degree that we cannot institute in any free society. I believe for a while in China, China they set up central shelters and tents. And if people test positive, they were pulled out of their house and had to convalesce in that tent. Um, you can't, I, it, as I, it would be unthinkable to do that in this society. Um, I think you couldn't even achieve it. Yeah. Yeah, and they have such a central control that they can actually, you know, yes, actually, actually close, close down the city, city. Yeah. and just bring it, br bring in food from the outside and just, you know, keep the city going with support just decided by the central government that they should just get food and water and stay closed for a month. And they almost did that, um, which is, you know, practically, well, that's that part of the debate. Some people would say that we could have done that. I've heard individuals claim that we could have done that in Norway. We could have closed the borders and just, you know shut down but that would still mean yeah that doesn't it doesn't add up in my mind so and, and not like you say not practical in a free society to, to do now, that now the vaccine efficacy thresholds are you know i was reading about it i mean they're 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 good 50 percent reduction lower bound of the conference interval 30 percent or higher reduction that's good. It's not terrific. It's not 70% reduction. It's not It's not lower bound confidence interval, 50% reduction. I guess one question I have is even as you vaccinate, there'll still be outbreaks of the virus. Um, 
potentially even after everyone is vaccinated, there'll still be some outbreak uh, in the future. Um, uh, also, durability of the vaccine is an unknown. Uh, it, uh, will we? Is it? Is that a possibility that we'll be facing recurrent uh, vaccine out- outbreaks, or that you believe the vaccine will really kind of neutralize the threat? Well, I, I, in my naive thinking, I've been I've been sort of expecting that once we get a vaccine that is considered effective not yeah, enough to be distributed right. to the whole population, we must expect that that will close sure. the story as long as we get it um, delivered to, to, to everyone. But I guess if we don't have, if we have a sort of sort of effective vaccine and that's all we have, I, I guess we will start using it just to, to uh, as part of the flattening of the curve strategy. But I haven't thought about that. I, I've, I've been thinking that once we get a sufficiently effective vaccine, we're, we're, and we get it spread out to the, to, to the population, then the, the, then it's a done deal. But, uh, but you're right. That, that, that might not be the case. I, I, I Well, I guess I'd that. say, I mean, I'm hoping your scenario is right. I think the challenges I see are, one, distribution is going to take a lot of time, months, perhaps a year. Yeah. Manufacture will take sure. a long time. There'll be outbreaks then. And then the other possibility is, God forbid, yeah. that, you know, this is going to be a very quick vaccine. Um, and... And 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 the durability of the vaccine will be unknown. So maybe it protects you for three months, six months, enough for the trials to be positive, yeah. and maybe it has some waning efficacy. Um, all sorts of possibilities. Uh, so anyway, I guess I think it. The the reason I say that is not to be a fear monger. I mean, I think it's something to consider, and it also does kind of suggest that doing these randomized studies come what may, may still have a value. I mean, that knowledge may be still important to gather for future pandemics or for things to come in the years to come that we don't foresee. Yeah, I I think so. I think it's still worth uh, pursuing them. Dr. Fretheim, uh, any last thoughts on this topic? I mean, I applaud you for your work. Um, There are a lot of people who talk the randomized talk, but you walk the walk. You've pushed for it hard. Um, You've done the tough power calculations, you've thought through the logistics, um, thinking through sometimes very practically how to do it um, is, is very rewarding for thinking about, I think, how one thinks about the virus and how it spreads. Um, it, when you really get into the weeds of how do you design the study, um, I often like to think about the specifics of a study, run some power calcs. Um, sometimes it gives me a better sort of sort of philosophical view of a landscape to run a power calculation and think, you know, and, and think about how you would study it um, because it gives you a sense of the effect size you're chasing, what you'll learn what you might not learn um any last thoughts about this space i I find it so interesting um i think a hundred years from now we'll be better than we are today i hope um uh just as we are better than than thousand years ago i i uh, well if i one last thought if i may on on that note is um i wish that we could learn from this uh pandemic and 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 maybe also do something about it while it's still ongoing is that we we need to have we would benefit from having a, a preparedness Yes. Some sort of system that we can run these types of trials when the occasion arises, when there is a, a new epidemic or, or other types of uh, outbreaks or, or, or crises, we can actually, we have a system in place. The legal barriers are uh, sorted out, the, the understanding among the decision makers, so we can rapidly institute uh, trials and get, get them done, you know, within all the ethical frameworks, etc. That's, yeah. that's something I hope we can learn, learn from this this exercise. And we, we have an ambition of trying to, to, to achieve something of that sort. That's yes. I, and I would say that I think if you work on drafting something like that, I would love to be a part of it. I mean, I think some of the principles that guide would, what I would be interested in is I think they have to be two 
big sections of it. One will be pharmacologic and one will be non-pharmacologic. We cannot forget non-pharmacologic. We have to do cluster randomized trials so we get, especially for contagious diseases, so we get a sense of those uh, those externalities of spread. Um, many nations have to participate. Places with high event rate have to participate. Um, the higher the event rate, the better, the faster we'll get the results. Um, the faster they can be implemented, the less paperwork, the better. On the pharmacologic side, some principles I have is one of the great errors of this whole debate was in prioritizing what to study. The things to study first should be repurposed drugs that are already manufactured at multiple sites um, that have the same preclinical um, justification as novel drugs. In the U.S., it's all remdesivir and mamamimab. It's all novel drugs that are going to be really costly. But even if they work, how are you going to scale up the production and get it to everyone globally? The dexamethasone study from the U.K. is much better. Dexamethasone is more widely available. That, And then I think once the trials are positive, one of the big errors of the dexamethasone fiasco is people think dexamethasone good, give dexamethasone. They don't realize that if you're not on O2, it's not so good, uh, you know, so they don't know the nuances. So we need a way to, when the data is resulted, to distribute it in a high yield way where people are doing the right thing. Anticoagulation, we could have sorted that out. Um, yeah. On the non-pharmacological side, so many things could have been tested. Uh, it was a failure of the imagination and uh, a misunderstanding of randomization not to do more. And I think in the future, we should have a playbook. Whatever global catastrophe occurs, um, insofar as we can learn as we go and careful experiments, we ought to do it. I think that's the most pressing need um, that has arisen. Yeah, a playbook. That's, that's the word I was looking for. Thanks. Yes, that's what we need. Dr. Fredheim, it's a pleasure to talk with you. You have to come back and give us some updates on this in the future. Thanks a lot for having me. Thank you. I'm joined here in plenary session via Zoom by Dr. Tony Latai. It's a real pleasure to have Dr. Latai, who is a professor of medicine at Dana-Farber Cancer Center. He is well known to many people in cancer medicine and particularly on Twitter. Um, he is an MD-PhD from the University of Chicago, so we share our medical school alma mater. He went on to the Brigham and Women's Hospital where he did his internal medicine residency and then fellowship at Dana-Farber Cancer Center. And he has been stuck there in Boston for quite a while now. Dr. Latai, it's a pleasure to have you here. Yeah, it's a pleasure uh, Pleasure to be here. It's uh... I'll, I'll, to uh, be able to have a conversation with you, if it uh, requires a podcast, uh, that's that's the price I'm willing to pay. <laughs> well, there's no, yeah, well, I guess I'd say if we were going to talk, I know it'll be great for my podcast because people would love to hear what you have to say on so many things. I mean, you're well known for being a physician scientist in the field, well known for being really a thoughtful critic, uh, a well-respected critic of, I think, some of the philosophies in cancer medicine, which we're going to talk about. Um, but, you know, you are in a unique position because... Um, you're, you're somebody who's really thoughtful and critical about the way we are marketing and hyping oncology. Um, and you're also somebody with a foot in the lab who's thinking about how do we advance and innovate. So, you know, you're doing a bit of both. Yeah, I, I, I try to. I, I honestly don't think, I don't know if, I, think, I guess I am critical of things, but I think I, part of me thinks that the appropriate poise of any scientist is skepticism. Yes. and. And that is whether it has to do with clinical data or physical data or whatever it is, is one is to take a Popperian view of the landscape. One is always trying to disprove hypotheses yes. and looking for weak points and looking for tests that will disprove a hypothesis. And that's the way I view an awful lot of things. And I think even very good scientists uh, have sometimes an emotional response to people who embrace this a little too rigorously. One can embrace, there's no end of political issues where if you take that sort of uh, point of view, does not make you a lot of, uh, 
friends, but I don't think there's all that many different ways of knowing. There's different levels of confidence in what you know, but I still just, it's ingrained in me. I view most things with skepticism. I, and I think that's right. And I think that that is, I mean, at the end of the day, that's just another way of saying you're a scientist at heart, I think. I mean, I think of them as synonyms. And and so much mm-hmm. of the response to some of uh, hype or, or things that are spun is just your inner scientist comes out and says, oh, come on, you're going to have to give me a lot of proof for me to believe that. Right, exactly. And, 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 and always, and also, I mean, I just love this, if I can just like summarize what I understand of this point of view, it's yeah. just sort of the idea like, you and I would both agree that copper conducts electricity, right? Sure. The classic example, right? However, it only takes one experiment where someone does an experiment tomorrow and the laws of physics change or whatever it is, and copper doesn't conduct electricity to have disproved that hypothesis. Even if there is one million experiments where it does, it only takes one to do. And and it, it makes you really consider what how difficult it is to obtain knowledge and truth. And what I'm surprised by, um, not at, at many levels, both at the basic science level, medical level, is not that people believe one thing or another. You have to, you're, you're in medicine, you, you're faced with a patient, you have to make a decision. Yes. You have, you know, yes. so often, very, very often in the face of very incomplete data and very inconclusive data. I understand you do that. But what I don't quite understand is the intense confidence, almost emotional confidence that you then have in your opinion to make to, to, to make a decision in the face of incomplete data is what we do with 99% of the decisions we make in our lives. Yes. Including the most important ones like who to marry, where to live, oh. what career to pursue, and all that, right? Right, right, yeah. But what I don't get are the people who make these decisions and yet are 100% true, you know, right. I don't mean, I accept my marriage from that. I'm 100% sure <laughs> that my marriage is the right decision. But all the other things, all the other things in life, it's it's very hard to be 100% certain. I'm always struck by very intelligent people that are very certain about things when they couldn't possibly, when they'll take that same mind and apply it to a scientific problem and have this correct skepticism, but then and just move even a tiny bit of off their area of expertise, and they're willing to evince total confidence in things that no one could possibly know. That's so funny you say that. I mean, I I, I, I agree with everything you said. Um, I, I just, I mean, I think that we forget often in times in life on a daily basis, we're making thousands of choices and decisions on a daily basis. The vast majority are, are we don't have any evidence. We're outside of the realm of evidence. And you're talking about, you're really talking about really the most important questions, uh, you know, who to spend your time with, uh, uh, you know, uh, where to live, when to have kids, things like that in life. I mean, there's very little evidence. Um, but I'll give you one example of, of, of this kind of mindset, just sort of a microcosm. I Many years ago, I was interviewing, I think, for internal medicine residency at Stanford. And I forget who I was interviewing with, but one of the faculty members who's a big proponent of evidence-based medicine, this person really wants to have good evidence to do things. And in the course of the interview, this person pulled out a sheet of paper and they said, you know, I, I'm just going to ask you a few questions. Um, what are your strengths and your weaknesses? Um, what was a difficult situation you felt and how did you overcome it? Sort of those classic questions. And I said, you know, I'm happy to answer these questions, but I just want to tell you, um, you know, I actually spent a few years ago, I like looked into those questions and, and you're asking me those questions because you want to know, am I going to be a good resident here? And I, and I, and, and so that you really want to know about my job performance. And it turns out those questions, uh, whether I answer them really well or really poorly, tells you almost nothing about how well I'll do the job. And he pushes right. his chair back and he says, you know what? I'm such a proponent of evidence-based medicine, but I never once thought to extend it into the interview. Um, that, yeah. that, yeah. And, and that's similar to what you're saying, that people are good scientists in their little field. And then sometimes you go a little bit outside of their field and they forget their science hat. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. And uh, 
even, it, 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 uh, and that's okay, uh, except for actually moving beyond the realm of science. I think that's one of the reasons why a lot of people are angry at each other. Yes. Is because there is a failure to acknowledge like the great uncertainties we have in life and, and how we just can't be sure of anything. And I have to say, uh, I probably sometimes, I can't say I'm without anger in my current life, but I feel like I'm a little more mellow. The, but I would say that like I came to a realization of uncertainty and also I just was able to be okay with it. I'm like, yeah. okay with it. And I'll say, of, of course I'll do my best whenever I have to, but I'm okay with saying like, I'm really not sure. I'm going to have to do X, but I'm really, really not sure that that's like the best decision. And here's another realization I made in adult life is so often you're faced with these decisions that you have to make uh, under incomplete information. Yeah. Let's, let's say you're buying a car. Yeah. Okay, and you want to know, is that you only get to buy one, yeah. unless you're someone very special. Right. You're buying this one car, okay? And you maybe you study consumer reports or whatever it is. Yeah. And you make that decision, you commit to that car. And I always had this inkling when I was younger that you'd make decisions like that, you know, fairly big decisions, maybe not life-changing. But then you would make the decision, and then later on you'd figure out it was a right and a wrong decision. What I realized is, and don't... Is it's not just before the decision you don't know. Even afterwards, yes. you rarely know if it was the right decision. Yes. Who knows? Was it the right car? Hell, I don't know. There could have been a better one yeah, or yeah. a faster one or something. You never know. And, and sort of it also exposes your inner, um, I want to say, psychology. Because if you're the kind of person, and to be honest, I am this kind of person, um, I'm going to buy that car and I'm going to love it because I love it. Because I committed to it, I'm going to love that car. Um, I'm right. going to see it in the positive light. But I know people in my life who, especially we're in academic medicine, so we know many, who no matter what happens to them, they can win it all and they're still, they're one more prize, one thing that wasn't given to them. Uh, th th I mean, our profession is full of that sort of personality type. I agree. I, I, and uh, I, uh, I don't want this to become a, a, a uh, sort of uh, introverted uh, uh, psychological session, but I have to say, I've seen that myself. And part yeah. of it is, I think we're trained, uh, especially like as an intern, um, to be very alert to any imperfections and like very alert to like, okay, I've dotted these eyes. It's like, am I missing something? Yeah. Like, God forbid I miss something. The patient gets sick before I miss something. So it, it enforces sort of a perfectionist mindset that I think is good for a lot of things. And I think it's not terrible for an intern to have that mindset. Yes. I do think it's not the makings of a happy life. Though. Yes, I don't, yes. I don't think applying perfectionism in your everyday life is is uh, is is a happy way to do it. You know, I I think that that's so well said. I had a really good friend, and he put it to me this way: he um he had had he and his wife had a kid, and he says, you know, and then a couple months into his having the kid, uh, or maybe a year into it, he tells me this. He says, um, before my wife and I had a kid, we had a list of grand ambitions. We want the kid to do this, and the kid to do that, the kid to do this, that, and the other. He says, you know, now a couple years into having the kid, he says, my only endpoint I care about is five years survival. <laughs> He's like, I don't care about anything else. He's like, that's success, right? So. So it's like you know, set reasonable goals. Yeah, and I, and and before anyone who's listening to this who might know me thinks me a colossal hypocrite, having identified these things, it doesn't mean that I'm able to abide by of them. Of course, or not immediately, completely in my private life. Yeah. But yeah, for my kids, I've told them my number one priority is that I die before they do. That's like my number one priority. <laughs> Yes, there's a lot of truth to that. Yeah, that's the goal. Um, okay, so, you know, this is th we could do this all day, but I want to go back. I want to start, um, I, I kind of want to get a sense of your, the arc of your career. 
Um, and so I wonder if we might back up a little bit um, to, I actually don't know where you did your undergraduate. I guess I'm curious, you know, wh- when did you find the spark for science? What made you go to the U of C? Who'd you work with there? And what was your kind of PhD? What was your mindset when you were an MSTP, when you were a physician scientist training? So I think that there, I, I think there's people like this in every career. It, it honestly never crossed my mind to be anything but a scientist. Mm. I, it, I mean, from when I was very little. There was a time when I was in high school uh, where I was very serious about the violin. And I went to my violin teacher and I told him that this, I was like a senior and I was trying to decide to go the conservatory road or go to, go to college and all that. He, I remember him pausing for a moment and then saying, you're good at science, right? <laughs> <laughs> He's like, I'd stick to the science. <laughs> yeah, so, and he was, and he was. Although I still play the violin, love yeah, it. He was yeah. completely right. I would have yeah. been miserable. Yeah. I was not of the quality of had a happy career. So anyway, I went to Princeton. I was a physics major. I see. That was all I wanted to do was physics. Yes. yes. But two things happened. One was that I, I kept my kept my sort of hedged my bets by also completing the pre-med requirements. Sure. And it wasn't until I was a sophomore in college. I think things are very different now in high school and college curricula. It wasn't until I was a sophomore in college that I was taught what DNA was. Mm. And uh, this was that DNA was this macromolecule that had a code that encoded an RNA that actually made the proteins and the proteins were the thing that did stuff. I had no idea that until I was like 20 years old. And that was mind blowing. So that to, that to date myself, that would have been like about 1984, 85. And I think mm. curriculum's changed a lot. Kids would know a lot more about DNA nowadays. But um, so I, I kept thinking about it. Then the other thing was Princeton is a great place for physics. Yes. But I think it was like too great for me mm. in that most of the role models, most of the exciting things were of these people who were extremely talented, like theoretical physicists. And I felt that I just didn't have it in me to be them. I, I subsequently, uh, particularly theoretical physics was the only thing that was ever introduced to me in the course. I subsequently realized there's no no end of fascinating things one can do with physics, but yes. it steered me away for it as I was leaving it. And I became very interested in medicine and did with uh, Professor Jack Fresco there, did some, did some polynucleotide biochemistry. Um, and then decided I wanted to go the, I couldn't believe, couldn't believe at that point, my luck. I didn't come from a wealthy family, middle-class family. And, uh, I didn't know how I'd pay for medical school if I wanted to go there. And there was this thing called the medical scientist training program, which we can talk about. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, I decided to do, and the, the key was it paid for my tuition, sure. both for under for graduate part of it and the medical part of it. And it was, it was a godsend to me. And I applied to a bunch of places and I ended up at UC because that was the best place I got into. Sure. And had a great time there. Yeah. And, um, and, 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 um, I guess, um, uh, yeah, I have, uh, I've talked about this training program. I mean, I guess I would say, um, uh, maybe we should talk about it a little bit. I guess I would say, uh, I, I, I believe that, um, physician scientists do play a super important role. Um, you need somebody with that clinical background. They don't need to be everybody, but there definitely needs to be some people who have both some experience in the clinic and also decide to run a research laboratory as you do. I think you can often think about things from a different vantage, maybe more translational. You think about the unique sort of circumstances. And I guess I would say um, my only thought about that program is, um, you know, if you had 
I don't know, $500,000, you can spend it in different ways. So one way to spend it is to spend it on, on training people to do MD, PhD. The other way to spend it is to spend it on the back end and somebody's in fellowship, but they're MD only, but then to do postdoctoral training and stuff like that on the back end. Um, and I think, I guess, I think it's an empirical question, which is the best way dollar for dollar to get the most physician scientists. One of my worries about the MSTP program, which doesn't fit you, but might fit some others, is I just know so many people who did it and, and they did it in part because they're always the smartest kid in school. And the teacher said, you know, you're smart, you're smart. You got to apply to this and just do both. And, but they didn't really have that love of research and they ended up in sort of private practice dermatology or ophthalmology. And, and it became a springboard for, you know, one of those specialties. Um, I don't know. How do you think about it? I mean, obviously it played an important role in your life. Um, uh, um, but, but you know, must know many people who graduated with you who aren't in the science business anymore, really. I do. It might surprise you. I, I, I probably agree with you more than you anticipated before you started. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the, the, um, I think that uh, I think there is a role for it. I do think it worked out well for me. And I have close friends who who are also exemplars of this program. Yes. But I think the United States is very lucky to have vested, invested the money to have people like Mark Anderson, who's at your institution yeah. and uh, and others. Uh, the. Um, but there are people there. They're, I don't know if they're prospectively free riders, if you will, but there are people <laughs> like that, too. Yeah. I do think there's an alternative construct that you suggest yeah. that we're close to, but we don't quite have, which is so my mentor was a man named Stanley Korsmeyer, mm -hmm. MD. I work on a floor with Bill Kalin, yes. Nobel laureate, yes. MD, yes. trained by a great physician scientist, Dave Livingston, MD. All MD only. Yeah, I'm in a place MD only. These are all people who went to medical school and then acquired the training afterwards. Yeah. And that, that worked out. You couldn't do better than these people did. I think we have something today that is a little bit like that called the loan repayment program. Sure, yes. The problem is that you don't know that you get that. Sure. And there are plenty of people, and I was one of them who like was wondering, like, how the hell am I going to play for medical school? I think there would be a role for a program where medical school, you don't get the PhD, but you commit to a research career that would be attractive to a lot of people and, and doesn't exist. I think there'd be a way to craft it and there might even be a way to incentivize it so that people really did have to commit to that research career at the end or there'd be money owing or something like that. It doesn't quite work that way. The full PhD, it worked out well for me. I don't think I would have gotten into Stan's lab. I had a great PhD advisor, Elaine Fuchs. Oh, yeah. We uh, did sort of something very close to dermatology, and I left dermatology behind, went into cancer when I went to Stan's lab. But I think Stan might have not have been interested in me as a postdoctoral fellow if I hadn't had credentials from a, a, a very good lab beforehand. So that helped me as a PhD. But who really knows? You don't really know about your history. This is one of these decisions you never know if it's the right one. I can tell you that I have a daughter who recently was going through the same questions. And I did not push her one way or the other. Yeah. She's now very happily ensconced as an MSTP at Case, but uh, I, 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 and I'm happy for her. But I didn't put, I, I didn't have it in me to tell her, you know, oh, you got to go this way, you got to go another. I'm very proud of her and glad she did that. But there's more than one ways to skin this cat. Yeah, I think you're, I think you're right that there are different ways to do it. And yeah, there's so many sort of just seminal scientists who, who learned it, you know, on the back end and largely just through doing it is an apprenticeship to some degree. Um, right. And, um, and, and I think there has to be different paths and we have to think about the incentives and you know what, I guess probably like anything, um, you know, the incentives will always be gamed a little bit. And so you can try to just do the best you can. Right. Um, 
I wonder about, um, so then you went to the, the Brigham and you probably were a very busy resident, but then you stayed on to the Farber. Um, you probably, uh, you probably overlapped a little bit with my old boss, Brian Drucker and, uh, and maybe Mukherjee was on your tail, on your heels. Uh, he probably was a little bit a few years behind you. I mean, you probably overlapped with a bunch of people at Dana Farber. Um, what I was did, the, so, yeah. it, so, sort of with respect to Brian, he left like sort of, I never got to know him at I all. See. In fact, I've never, I've never like really had much a conversation with Brian. We sort of have a lot of overlapping interests, but never, you know, been together. He, he, he was just leaving. And I, I knew, knew his name only. He wasn't famous when he left the right. Farber. He In fact, the opposite. The opposite. <laughs> <laughs> so, and then uh, Sid Mukherjee, I knew slightly. But it, one of the amazing things about joining the faculty, I thought, was how rapidly I felt like how rapidly I lost touch with the fellows in the fellowship program. Uh. You, get, you get involved in your lab, and that's your life and your family, and you lose touch with the the the, the fellows pretty rapidly. So. Uh, uh, I was kind of, as you say, in between those two, but never really got to know them well. I see. Who was in your cohort then, uh, your fellowship cohort? Let me see. Uh, Passiana. Oh, yes. Oh, Passiana was your cohort. Huh? And who else? Yeah. Uh, uh, John Stamatoinopoulos, now University of Washington, runs ENCODE. Yeah. Uh, Hua Kin Wong, who's uh, at uh, NYU. Um uh, gosh, I'm gonna, uh, Matt Friedman, who's at Dana Farber. Um, boy, I'm missing like ten of them. Uh, let me see. Eureka Saito, who's at Riken, who is now we're collaborators. We reconnected recently. Oh wow! Way from Japan, and she's now and and then uh, uh, Ann Partridge, who's a breast oncologist sure. at Farber Cancer and Institute. Farber, yeah. yeah, it's interesting. I mean. Um, I think at some point along the way, uh, you know, it went from everyone trained at the NCI to everyone trained at the Farber uh, sort of thing. <laughs> you know, it really did kind of the, the, the North Pole of the world shifted a little bit, at least in but our we business. We do put out like 14 fellows a year, so yeah. it's also the matter. <laughs> the numbers of game. Number, yeah. Yeah. So when you were doing your fellowship training, you um, you all you you also knew you were going to someday be an independent laboratory scientist. I wonder if you might talk a little bit about the transition from going to be a fellow to being on the faculty at, at uh, Dana Farber. My understanding is that, especially in the years that you were there and, and you were making that switch, they didn't keep everybody. I mean, they're very selective about who they would give a lab to back in those days. I'd say and still. I mean, still. when you're graduating 14 people, you don't have 14 labs sure. uh, that are open each each year. Uh, for me, I, I even I mean, maybe I'm just a chronically mixed up person. But as I was leaving my fellowship, I explored private practice opportunities. I explored industry opportunities and I explored academic positions. And I was literally I um, <laughs> things worked out fine for me at the Farber, but I. I wondered exactly how sought after I was uh, internally because I only became aware. I was about to accept a different position. I was literally walking by a bulletin board at Dana Farber where I saw that they had a posting for uh, a like lymphoma uh, laboratory, starting laboratory position. And so I applied for it and ended up securing the position. But it always struck me, and I asked about this before I accepted, like, is there any reason why no one brought this to my attention? And I have to say, I always wonder about that. Yeah. <laughs> the sort of thing that naturally someone would have like said, but it didn't happen. It made me sort of wonder. Oh, wonder. wow. So, um, so you, so you for a while thought about, but your clinical practice now is leukemia when you were Yeah. What little clinical practice I have is inpatient leukemia. Inpatient leukemia serves not, not, um, allo service, uh, but leukemia. No, it's very separate at, uh, sure. Jennifer. 
I see. So you're getting new AMLs, APLs, ALL2 on your service? Yeah, and in fact, the service I take care of also has complications of people who have lymphoma, often like febrile neutropenia lymphoma, or people being induced for, you know, some very acute uh, uh, lymphoma situation. You know, so FNNs complications like that. I see. But uh, if they're getting beam auto or or that sort of stuff, they uh, abuse. Uh, yeah, they go to uh, they go to. Yeah, so uh, the leukemia okay. leukemia service kind of puts them in a remission and I consolidates see. them, and then as soon as they start conditioning, they go that off. goes to the transplant service. Sure. Sure, we had uh, uh, been a place with similar sort of similar sort of separations, um, and so and so these days you do um, inpatient is your is your service contribution when you when you do serve. In the past, did you used to run your own clinic for a while? Yeah, that would have taken me back about fifteen years ago or so. I had pretty undifferentiated hemolignancy clinic wow. where I saw where really I just saw lymphoma patients, and I did that for a little bit, and then. Laboratory took over. I found that like more and more as I was out of town, and I, you know, wasn't it wasn't wasn't fair to fair fair to the yeah. I had to decide. There's yeah. too much of my personality tied up in being a doc. I couldn't totally give it up, but I didn't feel like I was like, like I told you, surrounded by great docs. I didn't feel like I wanted to be a second best doc for any patient. Right. Don't want to be a hobbyist. And I think you're. I mean, I think that's right. That, that there's a point where you you can't be gone that all that much. Uh, you know, traveling conferences, things like that. I think it works for inpatient medicine far better. Yes, of course. Uh, yeah. Because you're it's not compartmentalized. a longitudinal yeah. relationship. Yeah. So why don't we talk a little bit about, I mean, I think one of the themes I want to talk to you about, the laboratory themes, is um, genomics and biology. And I guess, I mean, I think, um, I don't know, maybe this, maybe you won't like this metaphor, but, um, you know, of course, there's Plato's allegory of the cave where the prisoner is, you know, sort of tied in the cave and sees the shadows on the cave and his whole life he's grown up seeing the shadows. So imagine um, the person's reaction when they finally pull away and see what are the things that make the shadows, they're three-dimensional complex objects. Um, similarly, sometimes I think about the way in which we think of the cancer cell biology is, you know, we've smashed the cell, we've broken the cell, we've breaked apart the cell, we know the sequence of the genome and we think, oh, that's all there is to know. And we forget that what's really going on in a cell is a three-dimensional thing. The genome is looping on itself. There's all these factors, proteins, um, chemical reactions happening at that cell. It's such a complex three-dimensional cellular thing. Nobody really, I mean, our understanding of how the cell works is better than it was 100 years ago, but 100 years from now, they're going to look back and laugh at us, just like we laugh at them, you know? And so, so I think there's this distinction between the things you can annotate and sequence and and the real biology and i feel like that's some a theme that's really a part of your work and your thinking it is and boy oh boy have you dug up a can of worms that you brought up about 10 different points each of which you could talk i could yes. talk an hour about okay let's the, do uh, it's fine it's, it's it's really striking because that, that same platonic metaphor has occurred to me now, i i could think like there's one disease i work on that where um i'm i'll I frequently be sitting through talks where people are setting up these complex systems of identifying genes, or maybe now it's like transcript patterns or RNA-seq and all these like very complicated omic-based huge data approaches where they're identifying this, that, and the other thing. And um, what doesn't get identified are the actual targets that have been exploited to make this disease treatment far, far better. It's it's so funny. I, like Like a disease like CLL, there's a ton of really excellent work on the, on, you know, ontogeny and the growth and the tumor genesis and all that. And they identify a lot of things, but you know what genomics has never been able to identify for CLL? 
BCL2, mm-hmm. BTK, mm-hmm. uh, PI3 kinase, lineage, lineage dependent targets, lineage dependent. Yes. Yeah. So none of these targets bear genetic abnormalities yes. in these diseases. Yet drugs directed at those targets have absolutely revolutionized the treatment of CLL. Revolutionizes so much that the clinically excellent clinical trialists uh, like Matt Davids at my place are sure. just just now like doing the clinical trials to see how do we properly combine all these things because the the progress was so rapid and it had it's so funny it had absolutely nothing to do with uh genomics uh genomics at all and yet that's the paradigm of assigning drugs is like a if you're a smart person in cancer biology you got to be assigning drugs via finding a gene there's something very satisfying about it and there's something so tidy in terms of a scientific story uh, and, and Gleevec is the, you know, Brian's Gleevec is the perfect story sure. where you identify a genetic defect, not a mutation translocation in that case, that is directly tells you about a drug that should work. And not only that, when you give it, you totally change people's yes. lives. Yes. That is a life changing. Th- th- there's no doubt that Gleevec is more than anything was a life changing identification with CML. And there's been nothing like it, unfortunately, since then. It was a great first thing, except for you do pick the low-hanging fruit first, I guess. And and there hasn't been anything that has been quite as dramatic as the effect Levec had had on that. But getting back to more modern times, I think I first became aware of you and perhaps you of me with discussions around the broader uses of genomic medicine – and I think what both of us considered the fairly uncritical embrace of this in the absence of sufficient data to make it the dominant and only paradigm. You, I think you might come at it from more uh, sort of social economic aspect. And I came from it from like more of a scientific aspect. I was very concerned about the lost scientific opportunities mm-hmm. if we spent all our energies and resources on the pure genomics aspect of it. But we both met, I think, with the general skepticism and a desire for more evidence to support this. And I think the position we were in five, eight years ago, where I first had become seriously yes. aware and critical of this, was we were in more of a position where, you know, we really don't know how this is going to work out. The testing needs to go, but we should really learn and see what the results of this testing are before we make genomics the be-all and end-all of how we assign, of, of how we're going to assign drugs to patients in the future. And I think you and I have discussed some of the hype at cancer centers or drug companies or the NIH and the NCI all put together. It was all right. We're going to sequence your tumor, get you a drug, and it'll be just like Gleevec. And uh, that was what it was eight to five years now. But now we're in a situation where reluctant as a lot of these studies were to be performed, the results are rolling in. And if you consider like brutally harsh outcomes like you favor, like overall survival, and I say there's a lot to be, I don't, I don't, I don't quibble with you on that. Boy, or if you even go to softer yes, like response. outcomes, like response rates, genomic precision medicine as a global yes. application One does size fits not all. do very well. Yeah. And, and just to let everyone in on like what the sort of numbers are, if you're talking about people with sort of solid tumors who don't have another option who are subjected to genomic precision medicine, the number of people who get assigned to a therapy in that situation I mean, if you go by the NCI match trial, yeah. is far less than 10%. Yeah. Okay. 
most patients aren't that excited about simply being assigned to an arm. Right. They want their tumor to respond and right. they want their lives to be prolonged. If you look at that sort of statistic, statistic, it is scarily low. Yeah. Now, there are individual arms that prosper and those need to be examined. And there's definite, I mean, there are no doubt people with BRAF mutations and melanoma for sure benefit, EGFR mutations and non-small cell lung cancer yes. definitely yes. benefit. And there's another list of people who definitely benefit. I don't mean to quibble with that at all. However, we do need to be rational in our decision-making and realize that genomic precision medicine and these large cancer gene panels have, I think, far less benefit than many give them credit for. Then it becomes an economic issue. Uh, it sort of becomes, I was reminded of, it's probably an apocryphal story of Groucho Marx talking to someone. Lady Astor seems to be the conventional uh, uh -huh. sort of, where he asked her, Lady Astor, you know, would you, would you, would you sleep with me for a million dollars? And, and she says, well, I guess so. And he goes, well, how about a hundred dollars? She goes, no, what do you think I am? And he says, well, we've established that. Now we're just haggling over price. <laughs> I feel like, I feel like for, for, uh, genomic precision medicine, sort of like that. It's not a matter of there being no benefit. Yes. yes there is benefit. Yes. That's a great thing. Uh, not a matter of it having absolute total curative benefit in everyone. It's somewhere in between. And I think that um, people say we should do this for everyone because it benefits some people. I, can, I, I really am sympathetic to that. Uh, but are we going to apply that to everything? I mean, there has to be, I think we all have to consider there's some limit, some lower limit to benefit that we have to expect from an intervention, whether it's therapeutic or diagnostic, that we're projecting, we're, we're going to apply to everyone, it has to be some sort of some sort of measure of benefit that we want to achieve before we commit to that. Uh, there's real financial and resource costs. There's also opportunity costs to going after going after drugs that, or diagnostic processes that ind indicate drugs that aren't always that useful. And it, I know it, one of the things you say is, you know, conventional chemo outperforms a lot of these. So I'm just giving yeah. the, the standard yeah. care conventional chemo so outperforms. These are the studies that I think we have to just critically examine. And there's no doubt places where people can identify where it, it is beneficial to do these things. But I would say that it, the, the studies just haven't been done and just the uncritical give it to everyone. Yes, some people benefit. And if you want to employ it as a research tool, that makes a lot of sense. But just like giving it to everyone, I think we need to get some estimate of the benefit. One of the things I have, I'm, I, I'm very happy to talk about this, obviously. I think there's other ways to assign drugs in yes. a personalized yes. way to cancer yes. patients. And what I want to know is for all the genomics purveyors out there, like, I don't want special treatment. I just want the treatment that genomic precision medicine got. You know, <laughs> I, like I have a good idea and it sounds reasonable. I actually don't have the expectation that the entire community is going to therefore you know, pay to use the assays that I want to use because it's very plausible and it's and I feel it's a great idea. I, I, I think there is some level of evidence that needs to be applied. Yes. But I do sometimes feel like I'm hurting myself and this sort of small field of functional precision medicine yeah. by insisting on more rigor from precision medicine because it would the easiest thing in the world would be to just say, no, we should have very low standards of evidence. And if it's, there's a chance it might help someone somewhere at some time, everyone should get it. There has to be some way you make that decision. I think your analogy was spot on that there's, yeah, that there is this, uh, th that that's exactly what's going on. I mean, when I think about the history of this whole field, um, you know, uh, uh, it, it's really remarkable that the first genome-targeted drug 
was the best genome-targeted drug, both by the fraction of people who have response. I don't think we've ever seen it as high as sort of a 98% CR rate in phase one. And the durability of the response, also the most durable of all the all the drugging, was BCR-ABLE. Um, if we had just flipped it, if the first targeted drug was BRAF melanoma, I mean, it's still an effective drug, 60% response rate, but median survival 11 months. I think we would have said, yeah, that's a, that's a step forward, but our expectations would have been tempered a little bit. We would have been like, yeah, let's put some more money into targeted drugs, but let's not put all the money into targeted drugs. But because the first was Gleevec, I remember, you know, I recently I watched Charlie Rose. You should watch this. It was like 1999 or 2001, and it was uh, Varmus, Davida, Brian, um, and some big shot who used to work at NCI who went to go to, or not, we used to work at Dana-Farber, went to work at Merck or GSK. I forget. Oh, I'm blanking on his name. Um, and they're on Charlie Rose and his round table. And, um, oh, their optimism was just so unyielding that it was just a matter of time that, like dominoes, all the tumors would fall, uh, colon and breast and prostate and lung. They're about to topple. You want to say something? No, no, I'm just saying yes. And it's too bad. Yeah. It's yeah. it, 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 too bad. I think that, I think it's too bad. And I think that's, it, it, if I can, I mean, retrospectively, this is very cheap to say, but like, that's where a skeptical viewpoint can sometimes, you know, be beneficial. Uh, maybe it doesn't make you the happiest person in the world, but, <laughs> but, but you, you, you might avoid, uh, dis- disappointments like that. Yeah. And I think, I think that, it, go ahead. No, I was I, just gonna say analogy. Yeah. This comes from just like a college roommate of mine who is a photographer, not an artist, but he says like, ever notice that when you like, you get a bunch of grapes. Okay. Uh, the way it always works out is you just consciously or unconsciously eat all the good ones first and then you get to the end, the last grapes you're eating are actually not very tasty. And I think, like, <laughs> so I think, I think there's something about that. Yeah. That's why, that's why, you know, yeah, the, the yeah. big and the best stories are, are, you know, kind of first when you're trying a new paradigm. I think there's a lot of truth to that. I mean, it, and um, I guess I would say that I, I don't think, you know, both you and I would encourage them to keep doing this genome research, keep finding druggable targets. Just in the last year, we found some good ones, Trek Fusion. Uh, is that a good yeah. one equally distributed in all tumors? No, it's in salivary gland sarcoma, infantile dermatofibroma, and soft tissue sarcoma. It's uh, I've yet to meet anyone with lung cancer driven by track, and I heard that some very senior people at big places have yet to see one of those. But, you know, um, we're still chipping away, but we're chipping away really small. In my mind, I think the real problem has been um, if you're a funder— um, if you were, if you were fund, if you're in the space of funding cancer research, every time you see a spark, you you take everything over there to that spark. We're gonna just put all our resources into this spark. Yeah. And what happens is, you know, I was talking to Jim Allison once at an airport. We were stranded, um, and uh, I had talked to him for a long time. And he talked about what it was like to do his work, um, 2003 to 2007. Almost no funding, laughed at, um, you know, and, and and then of course checkpoint inhibition. Whether we, you know, if you compare them to genome targeted therapies uh, and i've done this i mean i think it's at least twice probably three times as many people cancer patients are eligible for those drugs just because they have fewer inclusion criteria you know you don't have to have that druggable alteration um i think it's the way we move the funding so for you know so the moment we had the tkis the cytotoxic uh, world was dead i mean nobody cared how taxanes really work we still don't know how half these drugs work these old drugs we can talk about that amen oh god could we i think this is one of this is this is this this I think is actually let's let's try this out let's try to work through this so this I actually think is a good model that represents very much how scientific thinking goes probably in a lot of fields but of course you and I probably know cancer biology yeah. best 
So there, the thing we all want to do is cure cancer. Okay, I think that's what we want to do. Now, the thing is, we actually can cure some cancers. Okay, and almost always, the the, the drugs that are involved are an anthracycline. Yes. Plus some DNA damaging agents, yes. and if you're lucky, something specific. Like in the case of lymphoid, it's always going to be lymphoid diseases. It's always going to be a corticosteroid. You got to keep a corticosteroid. Okay. So. If you, you would think in a totally rational world, if you explain it to, to people, it's just like, holy crap, I didn't know this. You have a way to cure people? What we got to do is drop freaking everything and figure out exactly how that works yes. because that's where the money is, <laughs> yes, man. Yes. We have a way to cure people. Yeah. Let's just do that to everyone. But we got to figure out what we're doing there before we do that. And what that would mean is that there would be, until it was understood, yes. an ongoing never-ending fascination yes. with cytotoxics yes. until we figured out exactly their therapeutic index, their mechanism of yes. operation, and, and how people became resistant to them at how every does, step of the way. How does CHOP and BEP work in testicle? How do they work? How are they curing this cancer? We need to know that, and then we can extrapolate to other tumors. Go on. Exactly. Yeah. And and, uh, and uh, let me tell you, as someone who's – I've actually – I mean, I think I understand a little bit now more a lot, because I've made this a goal because I thought it was so important. I think I understand the therapeutic index of a lot of these that has nothing to do with what people conventionally think about cell cycle and so forth. Um, uh, I don't think I understand all of it, but it still is amazing to me that we will be spending – we spend so much information on like understanding tumorigenesis in mouse models or something like that. And it's very hard for me to discern what drugs have depended on the knowledge that we've gained from that. And yet, just try and make a career saying, you know what, I'm going to figure out how cytoxan works in lymphoma. Uh, that you, you're, you're not going to have You're not going to get great... any funding. You're not going to yeah, get funding. I, getting... mean, I mean, I was talking to Tito, you know, uh, uh, the moment Gleevec hit, uh, you know, all, all everyone, they're, they're, what they want to know about microtubule inhibition, poof. It's gone. They don't care. It's all, it was always in the next thing. Um, and similarly, you know, we couldn't give two, we couldn't give a shit about how uh, checkpoint inhibitors, what, what checkpoints, who cares? But then we got one flash and now all we're doing is pairing it with Pembro and Nevo. Just pair it with Pembro and Nevo, whatever it is. We don't need to know yeah. how it works. <laughs> yeah, I know. I mean, I think the teasing thing about, it's not just response rates in the case of Pembro and Nevo. It's these tantalizing, yes, durability, long-term yeah. durable that we. It's very unpredictable. Boy, that that that's nothing. I have any particular expertise sure. or insight on, but boy, that's a tough ethical question. When you, that's a thing that always bothers me, and I hate to be too critical of checkpoint blockade and its broad use because Jesus, you see these people who have these. We're in absolutely hopeless conditions who actually there are these rare anecdotes and they really do exist to really well, prolong survival. No, I totally agree with you. And um, I mean, I think the data that there's a sort of a, a, a very durable fraction in, mel in uh, melanoma, that data is super strong. Non-small cell lung cancer, we're going to learn a little bit more, but we all have those few patients in our clinic that we certainly feel as if that's the case. These are, are really tumors that the primary defect was immune surveillance and that's been unleashed yeah. and it works. Um, I think that... I think that the other thing you're kind of alluding to both in the cytotoxic story and checkpoint inhibitors is is sort of a genuine human, you know, in, in many surveys of people, it is suggested that um, people are much more willing to try something with the low probability of 
curing them than they are to try something with a high probability of incrementally advancing their survival. I think that's just a human, um, uh, that's a very commonality among people. And so we are, the, you know, so I do like checkpoint inhibitors and use them quite often, of course, as where they're approved. Um, but we, we are kind of drawn to the checkpoint inhibitor tail story. We're drawn to CHOP and BEP uh, for this reason, because there's a fraction, we don't know who, but they are in fact really doing well years later. Yeah. Right, exactly. That's what people want. That's, That's why want. I went in oncology. The yes. idea that you, what does a doctor do? A doctor, you go there with a fatal disease. Ideally, if you want to make it the most, get the most uh, emotional bang out of it, they go to you to their doctor with a fatal disease. The doctor gives them a medicine, and they don't just sort of like get better and have a chronic disease. No, they're cured. Yes, That's, I that's know. what everyone's going for. That's what's so appealing about oncology. We don't do it enough. We don't do it for everyone, but we actually cure some people and. That's a very, I, I came to realize late in the game, that's a very rare event in medicine that someone comes to you with a problem. The infectious disease guys get to do it too. Yes, they do. There's not too many docs who There's get not to too cure many. people of disease. Yeah. And I think that, that that's that's so true. And sometimes people tell me that um, the best cure is prevention. And I say, no, the best cure is cure. The best cure is cure. <laughs> prevention is when you have given up. You've abdicated. You say you can't cure. You know you can't cure. The best thing you can do is find it early, cut it out, do that sort of stuff. The moment you get in that mindset, you're, you've abdicated. I mean, and that uh, there's some truth to that in some diseases that we don't have cures. So maybe we have to go there. But philosophically, the best cure is cure. You wait till yeah. someone's sick and you give them a pill and it reverses it 100%. That's philosophically a better solution than giving everyone something knowing that only a fraction will get it. Um, yeah. But I think the reason it's important to, I mean, even this discussion we're having, it's really important for biologists. So, you you know, you're always keeping your eye on the prize. And to tie it into one thing you were saying about um, the match data, which is... Um, uh, I don't know the polite way to put it, but it's been disappointing. That's the polite way. A bloodbath is the strong way. I mean, it's been really, um, really lackluster data. And I guess, um, you know, I mean, I, I often have people do a hypothetical experiment where, you know, to people who make your who make that argument that you were espousing, which is that any response is good, better than what we would otherwise have. My hypothetical argument is if you take a thousand people and you do whatever genome sequencing you want to do and you give them whatever off-label drug you want to do, um, and the ones you can't find a match, you give them platinum and etoposide because you got to give them something and you can't find a match. That's what you do in your arm. And in my arm, I just look at their histology, what they've been treated with, and I make my best guess. Um, and I give them a drug, typically cytotoxic drug, but I do it tomorrow in my arm. I'm just doing it tomorrow because I don't, I'm not doing any fancy testing in my arm. Um, what I want to say is I, I really do believe with the current uh, results from these genome studies that my arm will have a higher overall survival than your arm. You're going to watch people die while you wait for tests in a few. And if you only look at it in a single arm way, you're not paying the penalty for, for all the harm that's happening on your watch kind of thing. Uh, and that's sort of my biology. Or that's sort of my, my scientific approach to it. I don't know either one is true because, you know, nobody has an appetite to do those kinds of studies. Uh, appetite is right. low. I, I think... You do need that comparison to understand, but since you have me on, yes. I am going to propose that there is an alternative okay. to that answer some of these questions. And and it's something so simple that listeners, especially non well, perhaps medical as well as non-medical, but I think will wonder like, well, of course, why not? So so, so why so th this is something I we I call functional precision medicine. Yes. Let's talk about and that. The essence of it is it, it it came to me, I think it sort of like came to me a long time ago, and I don't remember the exact conversation, but I was having a conversation with a non-scientist. I, I can't remember who it was. 
and they asked me, it might have been, might have been my late mother. I, but, but, but just like, so what do you do in the laboratory? Uh, are you like, do you put like drugs on cells and see if it kills them? And my immediate response was, oh, no, no, no. It is far more complicated than that. We have to understand about genes and signaling pathways and, and so forth. But somehow that sort of stuck with me as if it like that was not a not a really adequate response and I wasn't really pleased with it. And I think it just stuck with me. It was always in the back of my mind as I did the genes and whatnot stuff thinking like, well, why not? Why not? Why is that such a bad idea? If like and then I would also say try to talk to any sort of educated layperson who yes. isn't in cancer biology. And try to explain why it's a terrible idea. If you want to know, I'm gesturing with my right hand now, yes. why this drug, how this drug in my right hand is going to work on this drug in my left hand, why you don't put them together and see what happens. Why is that a bad idea? Yes. And so why is that a bad idea? So there are, it's, people aren't just simply crazy. There is a reason why. And I think it's a compl it's, it's a combination of things. So people actually were trying these things, so-called ex vivo sensitivity assays. Yes. Yes. And I'd say they had their first peak, their first wave probably peaked around the nineties. And you know, when they fell off the map, Gleevec. Of course. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It, it killed it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. They, all the so, ships moved a different way. Yeah. So part of the problem was is these assays weren't great. Yes. If you look at the, if you look at them, they're not terrible. They're not providing no information, but they didn't perform superbly as binary predictive biomarkers. Was one of this that, that, that ERCC1 and platinum thing story? Um, what was that one? Uh, some polymorphism oh, in the predictive platinum. Oh, but that's like that's like way even more complex than what I'm talking. Okay, I'm talking okay. about you just take the you take a tumor. What I'm talking about you take a tumor out of a patient and you forget see about what, any genome right. information. Sure. At all. Put it on a plate, throw a drug on it, see what's left after. Now, these ex vivo assays often took 7, 21 days. But let me ask you a dumb By question. If you, take two, if you take cells from a lot of people and do it on an assay, isn't it the case that in many people the cells will just die? They're not immortalized? They're, they're not going to make it? It's even worse than that. Often some cells die and some cells don't. Often the ones that don't are non-malignant fibroblasts. Oh. And you end up doing your assay and non-malignant fibroblasts. <laughs> okay, okay. If there is an intense selective pressure, so there's also selection going on and there's also adaptation going on. So that's the price you pay for a long-term culture. And I think all these were evident in the first round that was done like 30 nice to move. 20 to 30 years ago is when people were doing this. Okay. But it occurred to me some years ago, like it was time for a reexamination. Cell yeah. biology is better. We have a lot more tools. More importantly, we have a lot more drugs. Yeah. Back then, it was basically, are you platinum sensitive <laughs> right. or not? <laughs> right, and right. There's, there's right. a limited utility to that. So everything was better about it. And so I started to work in this a little bit. And then I like poked my head up out of the hole and look. And when I say worked in this, let me make that a little clearer. What I did is I was trying to work on better ways. Um, which I can talk about in more detail if you want, but I don't have to, of like putting drugs on cells, measuring something very rapidly yes, to okay. minimize ex vivo culture yes, yes. and make sure that the thing that you're measuring correlates with in vivo response. Yes, so that's yes. what I call functional precision gotcha. method. Gotcha. Then it occurred, then it, I came to the realization after doing this for a while, I had my own assay, my own strategy, that there were these little pockets around the world of people who were doing the same thing in their own different way. Yeah. And um, it, it reminded me very much like Walking Dead, where there was a where there was a, an apocalyptic virus that swept through the world, <laughs> and there were these different 
pods of survivors who are like variously yes. discovering each other. Yes, and, and you have to and find so, each other. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And, and, so, and so, I have I have an internet which the people on Walking Dead didn't yes, anymore. Yes, like, so, yes. So, so one of the things I did is with help from the Forbeck Foundation, organized a meeting of these people from I around see. the world and brought them all into one room. And there was incredible excitement. And after that, I founded a society we call the Society of Functional Precision Medicine. Yes. It just unites everyone who has an interest in this. It's, some of it is companies. Some of it is other people uh, working in academia. But we're all united around the same ideas, which is like there is tremendous information to be gotten out of directly perturbing the cancer cell you want to kill with the drugs you want to kill it with. Yes, and okay. you just got to, there's definitely empiric ways to figure out what's happening. I think one of the lack of attractions to this, why, so why don't more people do this? It's so obvious. Yeah. And part of it is, is that it's pretty dumb, isn't it? What I said, it doesn't, you don't have to be a genius to figure out what I just told you. And I honestly think part of, part of the reason why people go into academics, academic medicine, and I don't say I'm, and I'm one of these people. Okay. I fully admitted it. I'll see if you admit it too. It's to be it's to clever. It's to be more clever than other. Yeah, of course. Exactly. I think that, I think you, a lot of people. You, yeah, yeah. And if you're yeah. doing something that is as simple and mindless as a six-year-old could recommend to you, it's very hard to demonstrate how freaking smart you are. Yeah, if I you're just so. putting drugs on self. And yet, I came to the conclusion that this is probably a method that has the greatest utility to change how we treat cancer patients. And I'm telling you, I sincerely believe that to this day. There is, I mean, the data improve with every passing day, but I do believe that we are hitting, we are hitting a roadblock into how much we can get out of what I call initial condition static information. And yes. this is all the omics in the world versus how much we can get by dynamic information that is to say when you perturb a cell you get so much more information um yeah i mean your, your method is i mean your method has the appeal that you're taking advantage of all the biology not just the genome the proteome the transcriptome and any other ohms and all the stuff that don't fit neatly into an ohm which is all the chemistry going on in a cell you got it all and it's a, it sounds simple but it's as, exactly as you put it what somebody outside of it would say you squirt drugs on cells see what works right and you're trying to do that but let me ask you what is the what is the intermediary you're you're measuring um, that gives you a clue that the drug would be active in vivo? What is that endpoint? So I'll tell you what I personally yeah. am measuring in my lab, and other people have their own measurements. So the way most drugs kill most cancer cells is via this program cell death pathway I called apoptosis. Sure. Yeah. Uh, just for people who don't know it, every cell in our body has a suicide pathway called apoptosis built into it, so that when a cell goes bad, it should kill itself by apoptosis. Sure. What most cancer drugs do is convince the cancer cell to undergo the suicide pathway. Sure. This is regulated by an organelle called the mitochondrion, which we're more familiar with as like the power plant of the cell. But it's also can be thought of as a sack of poison. And when that is permeabilized, when it permeabilizes, it releases this poison and very rapidly within just a minute commits the cell to program cell death when, when that happens. Oh, I see. And what happens with the drugs that we use to kill cancer cells, for instance, a DNA damaging agent damages DNA, which is detected by the cell, which causes a transcriptional change that makes new proteins that eventually signal into this pathway and make contact with this BCL2 family that regulates the popping of the mitochondrion and release of the poisons. And what we measure is it's sort of a, it's a net measure of the state of all those bcl2 proteins that are governing the uh, governing the so what we can measure is like 
We don't need to measure. If you wait for this whole pathway that I described to actually kill yeah. a cell after putting drugs on it, it can take days. I see. We've, we've, we've made a functional uh, assay that can measure just within hours, not the completion. No, the first steps the of the initiation, pathway. Initiation. The first step, the first step down this pathway. So that's, so that's, that's what our sort of our value added is. We can make these assessments within like 24 hours of the tumor coming out of the patient. We can make these assessments about sensitivity to you know, we can say whether or not this drug or that drug provokes the initiation of this process. So then let me ask you some questions. So I guess then one point is some a prerequisite for your analysis is uh, the availability of fresh tissue. So leukemia would be Absolutely. good. For okay. And then the next thing would be, are you able to say something like the fraction of the tumor that it's killing? So like some are 90%, some is 40%, 20%. Is is that part part of the, the your metric will capture that? It will. So okay. to the first part, getting fresh tumor is a problem. Yeah. It, it, I wouldn't say it's a problem. It's a challenge. It's a challenge. It really shouldn't be a problem because I'll remind you, like I remind everyone else, all tumor biopsies start out fresh. They do. It's a, yeah, yeah. It's us that kill them. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. We kill them. We put them in formalin Instantly, or zenkers yeah, or whatever it is. Okay. Yeah. We don't have to kill them. And when we show that we get superior predictive information out of these functional assays, that'll help immensely. The, the testing that we do will sure. go much faster because we'll have more samples. But that's up to us to, to prove right now. That's our biggest hurdle right now. And one of the biggest biggest challenges is that we need viable tissue to do our dynamic testing on. So that's part of it. And then, yes, one of the anyone who works in this field will find out that there is tremendous heterogeneity in, uh, in the tumor sample, and some tumors will have, you know, 100%, some, some will have less. But that actually, th that may sound unsatisfying, but we're actually uncovering something that looks much more like biology than genomics does, because there there is this heterogeneity in, there is a dispersion, and it's not genetically driven. Mm -hmm. It's functionally driven. It's There's a dispersion in almost anything you can measure, any biological readout, any functional readout in a population of cells. There's a dispersion, there's heterogeneity, and we do capture that. This challenge is then, amidst all this, you have to emerge with a single summary statistic that gives you <laughs> a thumbs up. You're either, yeah, yeah. either, right, no either going to give that drug go or, no or you're go. not. Yeah, right. And that's our challenge, and that's what we do, is to like convert these complicated you know, mixes of stuff into a yes or a no, and that's the job of a, of a biomarker maker. Okay, then, okay, one more question that makes me think about, so, you know, Charlie Swanton has, uh, uh, you know, nicely done, um, if you if you biopsy the kidney and you biopsy the lung met and you biopsy the liver met um, and you do sequencing, one may find there are sequential differences and he can do sort of phylogeny, mathematical reconstruction kind of things. If you took a chunk of a fresh, the lung, the chunk of the primary, the chunk of this, and you did the functional assay, um, do you find that the different uh, uh, the the different clones are susceptible to the same drug, or occasionally is there um, is there is there sort of intraperson variability in in the in the functional assay as well? So well, there is intraperson. I'll I'll count some mice as, per, as okay. people yes. because we said so. So we studied that less than we would like, but yes. where we have studied it, it they are different. Okay? I say they certainly can be different. I say also temporally things are different. I say. Uh, one of the things that's that that is completely overlooked, and partly because we haven't fully we haven't published enough on this, but we're we're revving up now, is that when you treat and then relapse, yes, we're always looking at genetic changes, and we don't find as much as we'd like. I'm telling you, what you almost always find in a case of a response and a relapse 
is a turndown of the apoptotic system, I what see. we call unpriming. They become far less primed for apoptosis across the board, which makes me think, indeed, we are onto what is really a pivotal decision event in response to chemotherapy. But yes, I think the type of geographic heterogeneity that Charlie has very brilliantly showed is certainly reflected at the functional level I see. Uh, as, as well. I mean, it might even be, I mean, potentially it could be diminuted a bit in the functional level because sometimes different patterns of mutations actually activate the same pathways and, and functionally they might be more commonality than genomically, potentially. Or am I crazy? Yep. No, you're not crazy. Okay. And I can tell you it could also be the other way around. And the other way too, around. Uh-huh. Too, too okay. genetically, too yeah. genetic. This is something I think we, we have a little more evidence for this. Two genetically identical diseases, one, say, in the bone marrow, the other in the spleen, the other in the circulation, might have different sensitivity patterns because they're being influenced by their environment. Mm-hmm. So uh, uh, another case where genetics doesn't tell you all. This What I love is like, well, we're on the... Um, it's always amazing to me how the faith people put into genetics. Yes, right. <laughs> when, when, when you can kids now genetics are pretty good at telling me from my dog. They're actually pretty good at telling me from you. Mm-hmm, okay. Mm-hmm, but that's not the job we're asking them to do. Uh, you know what right, genetics are not good at? Genetics are not good at discriminating. Let's say if you were kind enough to donate each of these, your neutrophils from your liver, from your teeth, from your eyeballs. Yeah. If you sequenced all of those, yeah. they would show up with the exact yeah. same genetics. Yeah. And I would argue that there are significant functional differences yeah. between your enameloblasts yeah. and your hepatocytes. Yeah. Yeah. The fact that we would then believe that genetics is going to give anything like sufficient knowledge, especially if we want to design combination regimens, it just it's it it I do not mean to say it's a useless tool. And it is not a useless tool. It can be very useful in certain instances. But I think I think the worm has turned since we yes. kind of started this adventure. Uh, there hasn't been, I think, public acknowledgement. But if you look at how people are voting with their feet, people, I think, are much more receptive to the idea that there are limited expectations for genomic testing. Maybe we should do more of it. Maybe we should do less of it. But we're, whether we do more or less of it, we're going to have limited expectations. And I think that's a more realistic assessment now. Yeah, I mean, to some degree, it's the classic McNamara fallacy. Uh, the things you measure count, and what you count can, and 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 uh, uh, and everything you. Uh, I'm butchered it. Uh, you know what I mean. That uh, that you you count the things you measure, and uh, and what you measure is what counts. Uh, well, ma- McNamara. So I wasn't sure. I, it's something a concept in my mind that I call the tyranny of the measurable. Oh, yes. It's the, it's it's the things that. The, the things that we can measure that are that are are so easy. it's like I would say I would put to you that this is why with some of your pet peeves with medical school curriculum, which I share. Yes. Some of them uh, you know more about than I do uh, is because some things are so measurable. Some things are so testable. Yes. Yes. That's why they get taught. That's why they get taught. Yes, because you can query them. Uh, but I guess it's called McNamara because in the Vietnam War, if you look down and at all the things you can measure, like who's got more warplanes and who lost more um, buildings, and it looks like we're winning the war, and then you go there and you look and you're like, oh shit, we're losing this war, right? So I guess that's why they call it, it named. Uh, it's oh, it's coined after okay. McNamara. But I think you're you're right. Um, uh, I sometimes think about all the decisions I make as in my in my in my clinics. 
Um, and then I look at what the board exam is testing, and it's testing things that are testable, that are nice little testable things, some of which are useful, some of which I can look up in a table when I need right. it. Yeah. No, I think you're, you're onto something. I want to ask you one question about the functional stuff. Um, many years ago, I read about some scientists, and, and my knowledge isn't too deep here, but they were doing sort of the chimera work by getting flies, uh, f- fruit flies perhaps, to, to grow some cancer in it and screening it um, ex vivo on like a, on, a, on a model organism or something like that. Uh, any thoughts about, I mean, that is requires a lot of perturbations of the tumor to get it to that point, I would imagine. Um, any, are you aware of this and any thoughts on this kind of th- strategy? The, the fruit fly model, no. Okay. Um, I am. I'd say the smallest thing I'm aware of. Like, there are some like xenograft growths in zebrafish that okay. are attractive. Zebrafish are a vertebrate, as as you know, that is small and tractable, uh, it, and you can grow a lot of them yep. very quickly. And then another vertebrate people use for this type of work too is the PDX mouse. Okay. Uh, these may have promise. I would just put to you that like the amount of work it requires. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and the scalability, certainly of the mouse models, is this far less than being able to just immediately test tissue, which is what my, which gotcha. is what my goal is. Um, that it, the, 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 the output may be good quality data, but it may just take too long. And it may, it's also far more expensive to be doing work in vertebrate animals rather than in, you know, culture systems. Now, I wanted to shift gears a little bit and get your thoughts on, the role of, um, I think, biotechnology, spinoff companies, and the like, and I'll tell you why I think about it. Um, I recently read a book, The History of Genentech, and this goes back to, to uh, Swanson and Boyer, UCSF in the 1970s, and um, I, I learned a lot of super interesting things. I mean, it was really a very fascinating book, a fascinating history. I guess one of the things I learned was, you know, in the 1970s, the links between um, physician scientists and the industry um, were really kind of looked down upon by lots of colleagues. I mean, it was something that I think Boyer personally felt a lot of stigma. Um, and he, in many ways, tried to distance himself from Genentech work. He asked his name wasn't put on manuscripts, things like that. Um, then, of course, the the success of Genentech, I mean, just explosive success. And and he became overnight a multi-multi-millionaire, probably in today's dollars billionaire. Um, and, and that sort of really changed the minds of a lot of his colleagues, um, including, you know, some Nobel laureates who had been very resistant. Um, and, and, and now we're, maybe the pendulum has swung a bit on, on this spectrum, particularly at a place like you are in, at the Harvard hospitals and in Cambridge and at MIT, um, where, where enthusiasm for, for spinning out companies is, is, is high. And I guess I, I, I guess I'm really curious because you're somebody who I think, um, you know, has probably thought about both sides of this. On the one hand, I see tremendous upside from it where, you you know, technology is only useful if you can get it done and you can get it done in your lifetime and your career. And sometimes, you, you know, that's very difficult in traditional processes. On the other point, you talked a lot about how you got to remain objective and skeptical and prove things as a scientist. And the moment you sort of spin it, you also wear the hat of an investor, someone, you know, so many people have made a lot of money by selling their company to another company only to have the other company realize it doesn't work. Um, so how do you think about this role of doctor, scientist, slash inventor, entrepreneur? I think, I think the way I come at it is I want, I want to do what I do. <laughs> it sounds like my medical school application, uh, personal statement, <laughs> uh-huh. but like, I want to do it. I just don't see the, I actually don't think cancer is by itself 
fascinating enough biology that I would want to study it for its own sake. Mm -hmm. I think developmental biology, neurobiology, all the, there's, I could list many evolutionary biology, all far more fascinating from mm -hmm. basic perspective. Interesting. Okay. So I do cancer biology, not because it's fascinating. It's a broken system. It's not that interesting by itself, but I do it because I want to find treatments that help people more. And in this world that you and I live in right now, the way to do that is to work with companies that are eventually going to make a drug that's going to go into a patient. And yeah. if you don't want to do that, I mean, there's all different levels. There's, there's ways you can contribute without doing that. But if you want to help make better treatments, yeah. it's going to involve some level of engagement with a company that makes a drug, I think. So I have no problem with that. The other thing I would say is, and, and this, this wasn't containing your statement. I mean, to apply it was, yeah. but when I started at Harvard, as a faculty member, part of it, I think, was because I was a junior faculty member and it's easier to apply rules with great rigor to the junior faculty than to the senior faculty. <laughs> yeah. But at that time, the rules at, the, at Harvard Medical School were definitely such that really discouraged this. And I definitely got the feeling that it was looked it was still looked down, looked down upon. upon. We're talking yeah. about the mm -hmm. early 2000s, early yeah. part of the 2000s. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and it has changed. So it's easier. People are just more realistic about it. Um, I think that it's important also to acknowledge, I think there's this, I, there was this idea that academics are working from pure motives and biotech are working purely from motives of profit. Mm -hmm. And I just want to say, or pharma are working from, I just want to say that I have worked in, with people in biotech and pharma and many of these people are people of the highest integrity. Sure. Uh, these are people who would never permit in themselves or in their laboratories the sloppiness that you can read every day in pub peer. Yes, right. These are people who would never permit because it, they can't, companies, by the way, can't tolerate inaccurate or misleading or exaggerated results. Yes. They, if anything, need to know the truth more than academics do. Academics, that you and I, I think, have talked about consequences. Academics su suffer surprising, surprisingly little consequences from being totally wrong about things. Companies go out of business. People lose their livelihoods if you're wrong in business. So probably both for practical reasons, but also they're just simply not bad people. The people I've interacted with in industry, I'm like, I'm like proud to call them colleagues. And they, they generally are people of like, who are very smart and of great integrity who have chosen even more than I have to just fully, they're all into this idea that we got to make better drugs and I'm actually, you know, and they're by God going to go to a drug company and they're going to go do it. So I do not in any way see some sort of decrement and in integrity going mm -hmm. from academia to industry. Now, of course, there's like the Scraleys and so forth in the world who, who yeah. give pharma a bad name, but this is not who you're interacting with when right. you're doing biotech investigational early science. And of course, there's going to be times where the profit motive interferes with what you see as the perfect clinical experiment. Yeah. It's not a perfect world. That's the way it goes. But I, I would like to overcome this idea that people who've never interacted with biotech or, or pharma, that that's sort of like it's a bunch of money growing people. Oh, no, I really, I really do not believe that it's filled with people who want to make better drugs. Yeah, no, I agree with that. And in fact, I always say that when I give lectures on these topics on health policy, it's my favorite audience because they ask the best questions and they're the most invested in these topics. But I think, um, so I mean, you've lived through it then. I mean, though, the, the pendulum swung in terms of academic attitudes towards collaboration with the industry have have moved uh, dramatically during your career. Um, so you've, yeah. yeah. 
that's quite interesting to me. I wonder if you might tell us a little bit about, um, and, and, and maybe here I have to eat my fair share of crow, because I was a naysayer, but, um, uh, and you know what I'm talking about, the story of Vanita Klax in, uh, in <laughs> AML. Um, and, and I guess I, I mean, maybe I have to eat my crow, but I guess I'd say I'm happy to eat it, because, um, you know, I've looked, I, you have your phase three study, you have an overall survival advantage. Um, I haven't done a super deep dive on it, and I, I promised you I will. I'm still going to do it. I've been waylaid because, as you know, presidents are coming down with COVID, and there's so many other things in the news, so I have been waylaid a little bit. But I wonder if you might tell me, everyone tells me that you and your laboratory did a lot of the really instrumental basic science in elucidating the role of, um, uh, uh, of, uh, uh, of, of venetoclax. Uh, um, in in uh, AML and in AML, um, and and its potential interaction with uh, the hypomethylating agents like uh, Aza and Decitabine. So I wonder if you might tell me. I don't know how you started. Got even got. Inter- I mean, of course, I guess it's apoptosis. So that's how I cross your plate. Um, how you got right. interested in what was the work you did and how you how you knew that there's something going on here. So so I just want to say, in some way, this is like the realization of a dream of mine. When I was yeah. an intern at Brigham Women's Hospital, I was fascinated by this the treatment of AML patients. And it, and it literally occurred to me how gratifying it would be someday if I knew that I could impact the treatment of these very patients. Um, the, the sort of, my lab, this BH3 profiling examination of mitochondria that we do has the ability, this is a question I had a long time ago, BCL2 is an anti-death, anti-apoptotic protein that in some keeps cells alive. It was identified because it was at a translocation of a chromosome in follicular lymphoma. Follicular mm, lymphoma right. doesn't appear again in this whole story, as it turns out, right. ironically. Because <laughs> it actually doesn't okay. respond well to BCL2 inhibition, right? Ironically. Yeah, I mean, better than like lung cancer, yes. but not as good as you would have expected yes. when it is it is the hallmark genetic, genetic event. abnormality yeah, for right. lymphoma. Right, and right. Which actually dates all the way back to Janet Rowley at uh, yep. where? At University, University of Chicago. Chicago. Yeah, University of Chicago. Exactly. Yeah. So she identified that, and then subsequently people cloned it, uh, cloned BCL2, and then led largely by Stan Korsmeyer, my late former mentor, uh, uh, discovered like how BCL2 works. So people came with BCL2 inhibitors. And I was asking the question, yeah. okay, if we're going to make BCL2 inhibitors, we got to figure out, is it going to work in some cells and not others? And is there a reason to believe it's going to kill cancer cells and not other cells? Because if, if, if there's no therapeutic index, what are we even talking about? Right. So so that was a real focus of my work in Stan's lab, and I developed this method, BH3 profiling, a way of probe even before the word BCL2 inhibitor drugs, it was a way of discovering whether the mitochondria in a cell were BCL2 dependent. And if the mitochondria were BCL2 dependent, the cell was. I see. Okay. So this was a big focus of, of my work. And it was a graduate student in my laboratory who used this method to identify that AML, acute myelogenous leukemia, was largely BCL2 dependent. Interesting. Now this was this was heresy because there is no translocation in AML. Of course. It's a, it's additionally heresy because BCL2 has a cousin called myeloid cell leukemia 1, okay. MCL1. Okay. It's another anti-apoptotic protein that has a lot of the same functions. Yes. But it has the word has the letter M at the beginning, okay. not B. With BCL two is B cell lymphoma two. Yeah, MCL is myeloid cell leukemia one. 
So, of course, God named those proteins, right? It wasn't- <laughs> <laughs> right, right. So that, so that like MCL1 must work in acute myeloid leukemia and BCL2 must work in B-cell lymphoma. So of course. it was heresy to even suggest I see. this. But- Fascinating. Oh, you're kind of being but- – the constraint of language is kind of is shaping people's minds. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah Absolutely yeah, yeah. did. Even like after the clinical trials were turning positive, I remember a review from Lancet Oncology where one of the reviewers was like – was saying like, well, nice, but this can't be so because everyone knows AML is an MCL1 dependent disease. Oh, and interesting. It was just, but, but, and just to prove, just to confirm the final point, a venetoclax does not directly bind MCL1. It only binds BCL2. No, right? only BCL2. Okay, gotcha. Right. Right. So, it, it, so I see what you're saying. Right. Human beings artificially put these labels on a long time ago, and we've locked our minds into that these must be the pro- right. I gotcha. Right. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, so yeah, anyway, yeah. Trangbo okay. showed that yeah. using these mitochondrial methods, that a lot of MC, a lot of lot of uh, AML was BCL2 dependent, I and see. I I don't want to go any further without saying this. It was at this point that I became aware of the work of Marina Konopleva at MD Anderson. Right. Okay. And the work that I did on BCL2 and AML was basically from this part forward was a partnership with Marina, and we collaborate to this day. I just don't want to leave her out of, of the course. picture. She was, she was a major contributor, too. Uh, and I actually think it was lovely. We, we never met. We ran each, to each other at a meeting. We immediately recognized each other, and we said, do you want to work separately? Do you want to work together on this? And we're like, together, man. And it was work from my lab using these assays that she she performed. Um, also, uh, Leah Hogdell, who actually works for AbbVie now, she she provided some very early key information, as well as uh, Aaron Pan, who used to work for Marina, now works for me. Uh-huh. All provided very important. But what we did is we combined our information, and I actually physically went to AbbVie, and they gave me half a day to convince them to start a myeloid program and the data all functional non-genetic was sufficient to convince them to start a myeloid program so marina i did a single agent trial and there was a signal not a brilliant signal but there were actually people taking a pill a day who were getting complete remissions i see i see so there was there was a single agent activity response rate uh to it yeah and 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 you know for like a pill taken at home yeah put someone in a cr with aml with aml right with aml real cancer yeah Right. And right. then and then and then because then then uh, I didn't then the subsequent trial combination with uh, hypomethylating agents, yes. those originated a lot of the work originating that took place at MD Anderson. It wasn't me. But I say the, the rest, as they say, is history. The 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 basically the, the what we learned from Venetoclax from CLL is if you have single agent activity, combine it with stuff that already works in the disease and it's going to work a lot better. And right. that's exactly what we found in CLL. That's what we found in AML. So now we have. And, and AML, if you, everyone, everyone knows who's worked in oncology, the sort of the big emotional soap opera of this seven and three induction where yeah. people are admitted to the hospital for yeah. 30 days and some oh, yeah. of them are killed because of the toxicity. We're at the point now with the advent of oral hypomethylating agents where it may be possible that we will be inducing complete remissions in AML. With an all giving- oral regimen. Exactly. Yeah. Can you believe it? Yeah, that's and and you know what? Uh, seven plus three has had a long reign as king. Long reign right. for many years. Okay, and it but still let, is for the younger patients. I don't want, of course, for of younger course, patients. Yeah. Still, I mean, you haven't is, displaced but, it entirely yet. We'll see. But um, I got a few questions for you. Okay, so do you think AbbVie was um more inclined to see the value of your functional work for the simple reason that both in C in CLL, the thing that they're making money from from the drug, they don't have a genetic mutation they're targeting. They're doing it functionally. Exactly. We 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 preceded our work in AML with a very similar CL, functional work in CLL. Yeah. And it indicated CLL is a great target, and it turned out we were right. Okay. And I think that that, and I think 
I think um, that helps your cause. Well, I think pharma, like we were saying, they have to focus much more on not what should be right, but what is Right. Oh, that's a okay. that's a line from they, my book. <laughs> yeah. Is, is I, I that right? Think, no, 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 not not exactly as you say. But I think that that's a key point, which is that the real question is what actually does work and not what ought to or should work. You know, or it, it's really what works. Okay, let me yeah. ask you this: BCL two is. Um, I mean, now you've got two. You got two under your belt of malignancies where it is playing an instrumental role. But BCL two, of course. Um, I guess maybe you don't want to you don't want to say, but maybe there there are other tumor types that you you're you're zoning in on. You're thinking maybe I mean one oh, can, yeah yeah okay. I mean these aren't all this is there's public information okay. like man and I'm not involved. This you know, I it's, say yeah. there, there's like a hundred trials I worldwide, say, yeah, yeah, but yeah, I would yeah, say yeah, that yeah. like mantle cell lymphoma there's definitely a signal. Okay, look at the unbelievable work coming out of a collaboration between Dan D'Angelo and Marina actually at uh, at Memorial at Morrison at uh, MD Anderson on ALL. So the almost not everyone, but well, but the majority of patients, these are elderly patients who can't endure the big toxic ALL yeah. regimen, getting a mini, mini hyper CVD regimen with venetoclax are undergoing MRD negative complete remissions. I see. Okay. So ALL is definitely going to be another a place I think, you see it. Not a big, yeah, it's going to be another big target for venetoclax. How come when I've given, I mean, I don't have tons of experience with AML, but I have some experience with AML giving both um, or, or presiding over it. Um, hematopoietic toxicity is, I've, I've run into a few times. I think some providers say, is there a biological reason why um, hematopoietic toxicity is, is enhanced here? Do you mean for the venetoclax HMA? Aza, yeah, exactly for the combo. Yeah, aza, venetoclax azacytidine and venetoclax cytidine. Yeah, I mean that that um, myeloblasts are more BCL two dependent than HSCs are. I see. Doesn't okay. mean that HSCs are, are completely uh, uh, indifferent. I see, I see. And when you start adding another apoptotic stressor to it, it increases the apoptotic priming, making them even more sensitive. I but I have to say this this has altered my thing. I think in some cases AML. I don't know if this sounds foolhardy, but maybe there will be a time when we lean into that. Jacqueline Garcia at our institute is already exploring the use of BCL2 in conditioning regimens. I think that we've, for a long time, held on to this idea of these very toxic induction regimens. Then we just got to let the patient recover for a while, then move them to transplant, you know, maybe give them some chemi sure, chemistry in the meantime. Yeah. Maybe we can lean into the profound mild. I think if we push the doses with venetoclax and HMA, yeah. we probably could get even profound myelosuppression. Okay. But if we're sending a patient to aloe, maybe that's not so bad. Maybe we're getting like, uh, maybe we're getting some conditioning at the same I time. And if saying. we had yeah. a, had someone ready with an allograft, maybe we should could move that in. I think it'll also cause a reexamination of um, something we don't really do in AML, but a reexamination of maintenance therapy. Okay. Yeah. Because it's all oral now, it's more much more convenient. Yeah. Okay, that's interesting. And and I guess um, one last question here is: um, Are there any cytogenetic abnormalities in AML that interact in the, this BCL two pathway such that it won't work or it will work in this? I haven't read too much about that. Well, I wouldn't say cytogenetic abnormalities. Uh -huh. I would say that, um, like we found in CLL, people with P53 mutations do worse. Okay. Yes. But they do less worse yes, right, than if with... you compare them to typical cytotoxic regimens. So, like the CR, CRI rate in all comers, elderly, uh, treatment naive would be something on the order of 70%. Okay. If you have a P53 mutation, the CR, CRI rate is like 50%. Okay. That's still not too shabby yes. for a P53 mutant AML. 
Okay, then this is a question that I don't know if you want to answer, but you, I, I want to ask you. Um, when, when drugs and regimens are developed broadly, often when credit is assigned, it is assigned often heavily to clinical trialists whose name may appear on clinical trials, but often the underlying translational science or basic science was done by someone else. Of course, there are plenty of people who know who were the basic scientists and who are the translational scientists, but sometimes the the popular acclaim is attributed to the clinical scientist, who still played a role, of course. Um, does that bother you in any way, shape, or form? <laughs> does that ever bother you or play? you ever think about that? Um, I mean, it's nothing I, I mean, I'm selfish enough that it's something I would only concern myself with if it affected me. Uh-huh. Okay. With regard to this, I, I feel uh, satisfied with what uh, credit I have gotten for it. I, 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 uh, I started, I mean, this sounds hokey, but I have to say it's extremely gratifying for me now when I attend on this service, I see patients being treated with a drug that is helping them that I know they wouldn't have gotten, or at least not this soon. They wouldn't be getting it now if it weren't for work that was done in my lab and Marina's lab. And, uh, uh, sounds silly, but like, it doesn't matter what anyone else thinks. I know that. Yes, yes, you know and, that. Yeah. And that and that is that the realization realization of that is is uh quite uh to me it's like it's very important and, and, and means a lot to me. Okay, last question for you. Our time is I, t- I know our time is up and I really appreciate you giving so much of your time for this discussion which I found super interesting and so I'm really grateful and I've been a big fan of your work and thoughtful commentaries over the years. Um my last question for you is um I wonder if you might comment about what it's, I mean, obviously there's a reason why you stayed at the Farber all these years. Um, uh, you, you, you could have gone to another, a bunch of number of places to work. Um, I've talked to a lot of people who've done a lot of cancer biology lab work and they, they always speak sort of in reverence of the Farber. Um, I once met somebody and he said, the thing about the labs here is that the lights turn off real early. And the thing about the Farber is the lights never turn off because we're working on this all the time. But I, I think it's obviously exaggeration. But I guess I'm curious as a faculty member, if you feel as if there are any um, unique draws or is there something about the culture of the Farber working there that's kept you there all these years? Is there something that makes you feel like I never want to leave my move my laboratory? Um, that sort of feeling. Is there is there anything to that that sort of idea. I, I hate to undermine any subsequent bargaining position I will try to establish by <laughs> saying that I would never leave Dana Farber. Uh-huh. But, yeah. but, I, but I have, but I have sub- somewhat voted with my feet for yes. the last 20 years. Yes. Um, as a scientist, I mean, being at Dana-Farber carries with it not only being close to outstanding people at Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. I mean, I'm on the same floor with Bill Callen, Jim DiCaprio, Andy Lane, people who are very smart down the hallway from Dave Weinstock, Kathy, all these people who are just great, great scientists. And I think that you find I've toured around enough that you find great scientists everywhere you go. But the Farber and Harvard Medical School are big places and there just is a lot of them and there's not any real major gaps. If I want to know something or I want to talk to someone, they're there to talk to me. And Dana Farber is a big enough place that, that I can move, I can talk to the right clinicians and there'll be people seeing the kind of patients that I need. 
there are costs to being a big place. I compete for samples with a lot of people who I also see. want this. It's not all rosy. And there's other outstanding places that have this combination of scientists. I don't, I do think that, uh, the, 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 the sort of like density of scientific quality, at least this sounds obnoxious coming from me, but you asked is, is like, it is, just very high where I am. What about your, also, I what about love your, the contact with Cambridge. Yeah, what about your postdocs, the people you can recruit to work in your lab? That's that's very useful too. I talked to colleagues of mine who who are at cities that are viewed less desirable. Yeah. I'd say most most medical scientists want to have trained in Boston at some point in their career. And you know, it's it, it, it probably starts out a little bit arbitrary, but once a place gets identified as a hub, yeah, right. there is there is something self-fulfilling about it. It's just like it's a hub. So, you know, yeah, everyone wants to be there. Uh, you know, just like I don't know, there's other I'm now grasping for ideas like publishing in New York City or movies in LA. Yes. I mean, really there's no real reason why movies had to gravitate to LA, but they did, and once they do, that's where you gotta be for movies. We'll take it over to Bollywood now, my friend. No. <laughs> but uh Tony, it's a real pleasure to talk to you. And I mean I think um you know, so many really fascinating themes, but the theme of being a, a, a real scientist, of thinking uh, maybe differently, thinking about the cell, um, you know, we, we got to talk some more in the future about sort of the relationship between evolution and cancer and, 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 and how that plays a role in our thinking. Um, and, you know, you and I both see so, so similarly to sort of the broad use of NGS and maybe even outpacing a little bit what we know about it and, and then who should pay and those sorts of issues I think are so central. So thank you so much for doing this. Um, it's been a great discussion. It, it was it was a true pleasure. If I could just, I would feel so guilty as president if I didn't allow one final plug, and that is, if you're interested in yeah. functional precision medicine at all, please visit sfpm.io. That's Society of Functional Precision Medicine. Io and just learn more about us. We have these free seminars. Show up on Wednesday, see what they're like, and join us. Thank you so much. All right, thank you, Vinny. You've been listening to Season 3 of Plenary Session. Plenary Session is produced by Kiana Klossner. Music by Ian Straley and Audrey Tran. The views expressed on Plenary Session are those of whoever said it and no one else. Plenary Session is not medical advice. Follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session. Until next time.